And welcome to our very unusual COVID uh, holiday show and gift guide. Um, this is a, this is a bit of a change from previous years, uh, isn't it, Tim? Absolutely, it is. Absolutely, but you know, whatever. It's it, it'll work out. It's all going to work out. You know, we, we were we were just talking before the show about the uh, the Warner Brothers news. Uh, why don't you go and tell the good folks uh, what that all means? Which literally just came out as we as as uh, you know in, in the last few few hours. So Warner Brothers has decided that its entire slate, starting with Wonder Woman, um, will be uh, a day and date uh, streaming and in theaters. Um, uh, it, but it's going to do every one of its major motion pictures across 2021. It's a 2021 thing. It's a one year thing, but they've decided. Uh, that everything will, everything that was meant to release in theaters, uh, will be releasing, I believe, on HBO Max. Yeah, uh, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, data. So it's a big deal. It's a it's a really big deal. It's gonna what it's gonna do is it's gonna piss off theaters. It's gonna piss off the Academy Awards. It's gonna piss off other studios. It's gonna piss off a lot of people. And uh, ultimately, I don't think it's going to work. I mean, you know, the the behind the scenes of this is very simple, which is that AT and T who owns Warner Brothers, who, who is basically a tech and communication company that is not invested in movies or storytelling or Hollywood history or nostalgia or libraries. They are invested in turning a gigantic profit for their shareholders every three months, and they have $150 billion in debt that they have to get rid of, and they do not want to do anything to their core business, which is wireless, cable, all the tech stuff. So they're looking at Warner Media, I think, and just thinking, hey, you know, there's a lot of this is um, there's a lot of squishy stuff here that we can offload our debt onto. So they're they're basically trying to, to, to you know, kill their debt by killing Warner Brothers, it seems, which is not going to work. I think they're hoping that um, that these moves somehow benefit them by bringing enough people into HBO Max that it turns HBO Max's subscription base around. But I don't think that's going to work. I think HBO Max is overpriced. Um and honestly, I mean, why would anybody, if you're going to pay money for the new Matrix film, do you really want that experience to be on your TV where you're already paying, you know, a hundred and whatever dollars a month for all these streaming services and you're going to pay an additional, what, $15 for one movie? I don't think they are going to do If you're going to pay $15, you want to go to the theater and see it. Well, as is the case with most of these things, I begin by asking myself, um, what would I do? What am I going to do? You know, not, not, not as a film critic, but as a member of the audience. What am I going to do? Wonder Woman is going to be opening up. I want to see Wonder Woman. I, lo- I love the first Wonder Woman. I want to see this Wonder Woman. Okay. Day and date. What am I going to do? To be honest, I think I'm going to be watching it on my big old 4K TV over here. But for fifteen dollars, or twenty dollars, or twenty-five dollars, you you know, well, or or, or 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 even more. Of course, it would cost just as much to to physically go and see it in the world. And at this particular moment, uh, where we are, I think that that would be the choice. Now, to me, what that means is who here in here in Los Angeles, where we are, by the way, there are there's still all sorts of restrictions for you know theaters. You can go to the theaters, but there are all kinds of restrictions and, 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 and whatnot that are relevant. I'm assuming now that perhaps these restrictions will not be as relevant um, well after Wonder Woman opens. That's gonna, when is that, by the way? Is that Christmas? Um, Christmas Day. Christmas Day. Uh, yeah. So, you know, we won't be there with the vaccine and all that by then. But, you know, as we as we move deeper into the year, vaccine and all of that, yet the Warner Brothers movies will still be doing this over the course of the rest of the year. 
Um, and I can see how a whole lot of people are going to choose to simply forego going to that movie, going to the physical movie theater, uh, to see some of the films that we're talking about, uh, Deadpool and, and, and whatnot. Um, um, so, but, but, but I guess I, I'm wondering what the calculus is for, for, I mean, you, you gave your suggestion of what it is. They're just, basically what you're saying is they're willing to eat the year in theatrical release revenues, take the loss for 2021, make what they can on HBO max and, you know, and, and whatever money comes in through theatrical yeah. and, and not, and not concern, concern themselves at all, uh, with what the final box office, uh, is I, on any yeah. of these things. I, I think I think because what they're looking at is very short sighted, you know, uh, this and this has been one of my longstanding complaints about Hollywood in the corporate era. You know, corporate ownership of Hollywood kind of started in the in, in the 1960s, accelerated throughout the 1970s, but metastasized in the 1980s. Now. And 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 um, Sony takeover the, of Columbia and all of that yeah. was the last big one. Right. That was the last, uh, you know, mer, mer, when when uh, News Corp took over Fox and Sony and well, and Coca-Cola first. Actually. Yeah. Coca-Cola took over Columbia and then Sony bought them in, in like 96, I guess it was. So, you know, that's or 86. But that's when that's really when everything turned. And um, it, it, it the problem there is that it takes two years to make a movie. But a publicly owned company has to be able to move the needle on stock price every three months. Those two things are fundamentally incompatible. I cannot get on an earnings call with people every three months and give them guarantees regarding products that take two years to make. Mm. You just can't do it. And you can't give them assurances uh, that, that can't be put on a spreadsheet. You can't say, oh, but, you know, you can take this to the bank because we have a really good relationship with Steven Soderbergh. Well, I can't put that on a spreadsheet. I can't monetize my relationship with Steven Soderbergh. How do, how do you give that to a Wall Street analyst? You don't. So I think fundamentally the movie business has a natural incompatibility with Wall Street. And that has been a restless, restless relationship for decades. And I think now with the pandemic and this perfect storm of, you know, everything that's happening with, with streaming and Netflix and tech, I think we're just in a, in a really, really bad spot and it's got to shake out. And I don't think this is going to work out well. Mm. I don't yeah. think so. Yeah. Yeah. I can't see Disney doing it. No, no. But Disney's a better Disney's a better structured company. I mean, right there, they're a proper entertainment company, AT&T and Comcast are not entertainment companies. They're tech companies, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. they're, they're communications companies. Disney is all about, we, you know, the intellectual property. I don't Create, think AT&T cre Creating all those brands and That's acquiring it. all those brands yeah. and into the vertical sort of pipeline of, yeah. That's it. Yeah. Man, yeah. It's a hell of a thing, though. It is a hell of a thing. We're in uncharted waters, and it's going to be uh, it's going to be a hell of a year. I, I, uh, you know, we're we're going to look at twenty twenty one obviously as a time to get back to normal. Hopefully, they they say the vaccines can be distributed to an effective degree by May. That's the plan that we will you know be able to see this thing fundamentally disappear by May, June at the latest. That's what they say. I'm hoping they're right because um, nobody's going to budge until that happens, whether right or wrong. But, uh, you know, I think we're we're probably looking at this point at 2022 for some semblance of normality, hopefully. So let's see how that shakes out. Um, and, uh, you know, just hang on for a bumpy ride. But in the meanwhile, we've got a holiday show today and we have giveaways. Tim, do we have the mother of all interviews or what? <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, a, a true sort of godfather of, of, of cinema, particularly sort of a, a certain kind of cinema. But the great uh, and wonderful Mr. John Batham, 
uh, it's, it's, thought of it's, uh, virtually such, sat down such a with us. And it's to really talk a great to him. piece. It was it's fantastic. He has a new book, of course. It's it. Yeah, it, it's second edition of his 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 previous book, but it is you know it's a second edition. It's all nice and and refreshed and out from Michael Weezy Productions, and it is uh, John Badham on directing in its second edition. Nice red cover. It's a beautiful book. We talked to him about it. Had a good long chat. What a delightful man. Uh, just you know, we grew up on his movies. And it was such a privilege to to talk to him. And he listens to us on Film Week. Does that does that like scare you now <laughs> when you when you go on? Now are you afraid? Like crap, John Badham's listening to me. Um, yeah, what am I going to you know, say? Got to try to put these things out of your mind when you're talking about that's it. it. Know, yeah. Well, we're gonna we're gonna dive in. We've got uh, we've got just a whole lot of stuff to go through here. Uh, all of it really should be uh, right. We're gonna just give you some really great gift ideas for people who are looking to uh, to still get discs and get some great box sets. Uh, I, I'd like to start off with the 4K stuff because this is the future. This is what sets itself apart from from streaming, even 4K streaming. It just looks gorgeous. And uh, it keeps getting better and better and better. The big mama for the holiday season, Tim, is the 4K Ultra HD, the complete collection set of HBO's Game of Thrones. Here it is. I thought we'd get this sooner, but no, we didn't. We're getting it this year. This is a big, freaking beautiful set with the the image Mm. of a dragon wrapped around it. Uh, it is the entire complete collection of Game of Thrones on 4K Ultra HD. And I don't know that I have seen a better looking television show in a very long time or a better looking set of uh, television episodes on 4k. It really is tremendous. It's, it's, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to me to see how people engage, uh, you know, that entire set given, given how uh, people felt about that finale. Were you a game of Thrones or did we, 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 I don't know. We, yeah. see, I I'll be honest. While I can totally recommend this to people who love the show. I just never, it always, I tried to get into Game of Thrones so many times and I could never get into it partly because everyone on the show is just so relentlessly awful. <laughs> As characters you mean, you know, there yeah. there there are no likable uh, even 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 uh, uh, Peter Dinklage's character was, you know, he turned, yeah. But you know, yeah. I I I I kind of came and went with it. I was like that. I was you know, more or less like you uh with that show and and, and the whole time uh, you know, uh, thinking to myself, well, you know, I, there's a whole lot of knockoffs inside the show. You know, yeah. people of a certain age look at a series like Game of Thrones, and 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 we start thinking about all of the, the you know uh, sci-fi fantasy stuff that we read sure. when we were 12 and 13 and 14. You know, a little bit of Conan and a little bit of yeah. You know, and I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> what's going on here? Yeah. Uh, so you know, one of those kind of things for me. It it is. Um, but that said, look, it's a gorgeous show. It's beautifully made. It's uh, you know, very good friend of ours is, was the post production supervisor on it, and I know exactly what she went through putting. You know, I mean, the the post production pipeline and flow of that show was astonishing. It was global. It was yeah. like Lord of the Rings, right? It was you know, you're doing stuff in London and doing stuff in Romania and doing stuff here, and it it was it's 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 a, it's a real feat how this series was put together. So. Great extras on here. Eight, uh, 15 hours of bonus features, uh, which include the uh, two parts a reunion special that Conan O'Brien hosted. It includes uh, the last watch documentary, Conquest and Rebellion, an animated history of the Seven Kingdoms. Tons and tons and tons of featurettes and interviews and deleted scenes. And there's even a bunch of audio commentaries that are really some of the some of the best audio commentaries uh, you'll ever hear for a TV episode because they go into so many cool details. Um, 
it's a great set. If you love Game of Thrones, you got to own this. And plus, you never know when your internet's going to go down. You're going to want this on uh, on on 4K UHD. It just is absolutely the best. Um, also, here is our first giveaway of the show. Uh, actually, our first two giveaways, both of them courtesy of the good people at Wellgo. Tim, have you have you watched Possessor, the uh, the, the the other Cronenberg, the, the branded Cronenberg film? I, I have not seen that one yet. So th- this is a um, uh, this is a neon release for awards season, and uh, it is you know Brandon Cronenberg really is trying to be very much in the mold of his dad, but he also kind of does his own goes his own way, and this is um, a really kind of a fascinating spy. Wait a minute, about- that's that Andrea Riseborough movie, right? Yes, correct. I have seen yeah. this movie. I have seen this yeah. movie. Yeah, the apple yeah. doesn't fall that far from the tree. That's uh, right, uh, young Mister. Did Cronenberg. you see this for Film Week? Was yeah, this so one of the I things? Thought, yeah. This is one of the ones I saw yeah. for Film Week. Yeah, yeah. So it was, yeah, yeah. All right, yeah. Not kind of interesting. <laughs> it's funny. Just just this morning, I had this conversation with with Larry. I said, you know, Larry, it, it it happens all the time that I will look at the Film Week rundown and I will stare at a film and I'll and be like, did I see that film? Oh yeah, I did see it. I saw it last night. And I, <laughs> it, it, like that's how fast that's how fast some of this stuff fades from my mind. It was you so, know because yeah. I popped over and looked at the thing. I remember liking Jennifer Jason Lee in this movie. That's 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 the thing I remember about it. She was actually pretty creepy. So Possessor is uh, this really 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 cool film with Andrea Riseborough, who is great in it. And by the way, she's great in this new film called Luxor too, which we covered. Oh yeah. Um, so possessor is basically, they use, they use, um, brain implant technology to, uh, to, to control people. It's kind of an assassin thing, right? Yeah. It's, it's like if, if La Femme Nikita were mixed with some kind of a weird Cronenbergian brain control technology. Anyway, um, uh, it, it's really, really, really fascinating. Uh, Brandon Cronenberg very much becoming his own man. And it's on 4K Ultra HD uh, and Blu-ray. We have three regular Blu-rays to give away. Not the 4Ks, but they sent us regular Blu-rays. So we're going to go ahead and just say send us an email to gods at digigods.com or gods at cinegods.com. This goes for all of our giveaways, either of those email addresses, gods at cinegods.com, gods at digigods.com. Send us an email with your name and address in the body. And for this one in the subject line, just put uh, Possessor, P-O-S-S-E-S-S-O-R, Possessor. And uh, three people will be randomly chosen. We are going to make all of our choices for our giveaways um, by the 11th. So that's going to that's gonna give people a good solid week. Make sure it gets to us by the end of day on December 11th. And then by the uh, 12th, we will alert the winners. And if you don't get an email by the 12th, then that means you weren't a winner. But the 12th, we will alert our winners. Uh, anyway, Possessor, really, really cool f- film on 4K or on Blu-ray. Brandon Cronenberg has, uh, has you know, only a few deleted scenes and, uh, and a featurette, but that's fine. We also have a 4K called Peninsula from WellGo, and we're giving away three of those as well, also on Blu-ray, not on 4K. So send us an email with Peninsula, P-E-N-I-N-S-U-L-A, in the subject line. Uh, we'll give away three of those as well. Uh, this is a, a kind of a semi-sequel to uh, Train to Busan. They they build oh. this as Train to Busan Presents Peninsula. And it is by uh, Yan Sang-ho. It, it's more, you know, Korean zombie action, basically. It, it, but it's, if you saw Train to Busan, it's an intelligent zombie film. 
which most of them aren't. Yeah. Um, it's something that I think, you know, Romero would have been proud of. Um, anyway, this takes place four years after Train to Busan, and uh, it centers around a soldier who has come back to the Korean Peninsula um, on on a mission, and he's and now he's you know got to he's got to handle the zombie thing where it is now four years later, which is you know it's metastasized and it's it's uh, you know so it's not the same characters as Train to Busan, but it's the same world as Train to Busan. And uh, in many respects, I think this is a more interesting film. Hmm. Uh, let's see. Next on the 4K list is Lord of the Rings trilogy on oh, 4K wow. Ultra HD. We're going to give away one of these. Send us an email with Lord in the line, in the in the subject line, just L O R D, and we will uh, we will give one very fortunate person, as long as it gets to us by the 11th, a uh, 4K Ultra HD set of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, you know, Tim, have you watched any of these films lately again? You know, actually, um, it, 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 I had reason to go through most of those films about a year ago. Um, I was watching, you know, uh, uh, DVDs. Uh, right. uh, but, you know, these 4K things, I've, I've seen just a wee bit of some of them, and they're absolutely spectacular. It looks so freaking good in 4K, I almost didn't even want to see it projected again. Yeah. I mean, it's that, it looks that good. It really, really does. They've done a great, great job on it. Um, this has all of the theatrical and the extended movies. This is everything on nine discs. It's a very slim set, but it's it you, you can you can upgrade from whatever sets you had before. You can get rid of all of it, all the theatrical, all the extended cuts, all of it. It's really really amazing. Um, but I'm gonna say I know I'm one of the few. I still prefer the Hobbit trilogy, which is also out in 4K. We're also giving out one of those. Mm-hmm. Send us an email with Hobbit in the subject line. Um, I, I st- even though I was originally skeptical, how you know you're just going to the well too many times. You're stretching the Hobbit out across three films. It doesn't deserve yeah. it. You did the you know yeah. you did all the, the the whole the whole other trilogy in three films, and now you're taking the one little book of the Hobbit. And you're turning that into three films. Not on board. You know what? I wound up really enjoying it. I don't know about yeah. you, but I really I still really enjoy it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of of them, those would be the three. Yeah. I, I thoroughly enjoy this. So this also has um, all of the theatrical and extended movies, all of them on six discs. So the, the Lord of the Rings is nine discs. This is six discs. It's a beautiful set. And uh, get your get your 4K on. And then we've got uh, some great 4K anchored releases for some big, super big Hollywood stars, two of the biggest stars still alive, both of them remarkably ageless. Um, we're starting off with Eddie Murphy. Mm-hmm. Two, two 4K Eddie Murphy releases. Uh, the first one is Coming to America. 4K Ultra HD Coming to America. Absolutely fantastic. It is a steel book. Eddie is ageless. Uh, Arsenio's ageless. Unfortunately, the sequel is going straight to streaming now. Yeah. That's based kind on of what we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, but uh, a lot, a lot of featurettes on here. Great stuff, especially on the uh, the makeup work of Rick Baker. Uh, some stuff on the costumes. I mean, some wonderful behind the scenes stuff. For Gold, Golden for Child, which is an underrated Eddie Murphy movie, is, I must say, in Trading Places. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, co-star in Eddie Murphy movie. Uh, both and those are just the- those are just out on Blu-ray. Yeah. Those are just Blu-rays. But yeah. yes, those are out as well. The Golden Child and Trading Places. Uh, Trading Places is a holiday movie. We always forget that. Yeah, it's a Christmas movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great Christmas movie. Uh, Tim, what are your recollections of The Golden Child? Have you watched it again lately? Oh, The Golden Child. Yes, absolutely. I had to watch The Golden Child. Why? I, I don't know why I had to watch The Golden Child, but my first recollection is Eddie looked fantastic in that black leather outfit with, yeah. that, little, with that little bitty hat. 
Uh, uh, and I, I loved uh, all of that. He has, he has to go to where Tibet or wherever it is yeah. in order to find the golden child and bring the golden child back. He has, it was fantastic. And it's another one of those movies, too. I forget who the actress was that, that, that played the, the young Sri Lankan uh, woman who's protecting the gold, but she was like this total badass. Yeah, that uh, was uh, that was Charlotte Lewis. Yeah, she was she was just fantastic, and I thought she, I thought was, you know Eddie was ahead of his time with that. You know, not just yeah. saving the heroine; he had a badass heroine with, with him. That's a lot of fun that movie. And you know, Charlotte Charlotte Lewis had done uh, Polanski's Pirates, I think, uh, just before this, right? Was mm-hmm. that before or, or or was it? Yeah, I think it was just before. But um, I still remember. You know, I was working as an usher at the Man's National Theater. And uh, it was the, the like just months before Golden Child was going to come out. So we had had Beverly Hills Cop, I think, already at, at some point. Anyway, we what we got a teaser trailer, and we didn't know what the teaser trailer was. And it was it I, it it's really an incredibly funny funny teaser trailer. Um, it, and it's unfortunately it's uh it's not on this one, but the teaser is very serious. It shows, you know, snow and someone walking through the snow and you hear that that narration, you know, it will take one man on a legendary <laughs> journey, an epic journey. And the whole thing leads you to think you're watching something very, very serious. And then it cuts to Eddie and Eddie says, shut up. And it was, you know, it's just, it was, he's bawling out the narrator. He's, he doesn't like being in the snow. And the audience just laughed. It was a, it was a teaser designed for an audience, not for the internet, for an audience, for a laugh. And that, and I thought, you know, thinking back on that, we've kind of lost that art. Teasers that are designed to be seen by a large audience run during some other movie where it's a packed audience and you've got these people and you want to make them laugh and you have suddenly a thousand people laughing at one joke in a teaser. That's a thousand people who are going to go out and see that movie when it opens. Yeah, but for for one thing, you know you know that you have time to make that joke hit because the audience is you know it's captive audience is sitting there watching the screen, watching all these teasers and trailers sort of come up. Now, because all of these things release on the internet at one at one moment or another, you never really have a moment where you can gobsmack and a sitting audience with a teaser. Um, the way the Independence Day, I remember sitting with Bridget uh, at the theater the first time we saw the Independence Day uh, trailer, you know, with the, with the, the, the darkness of the, of the, yeah. of the, of the come up. And, and you're sitting there in this audience, you see this thing in the room gets even darker. And, you know, you just simply you, you release that that equivalent trailer today for some you know, horror movie or whatever it is or, or a space movie. You simply can't have the impact of that 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 trailer had in that theater with that 1000 no. people. Just can't do it. It just doesn't do it. Can't do it. Well, the last Eddie Murphy release, uh, also on 4K, is Beverly Hills Cop. Uh, The one, the only, the original, which, again, I worked at the theater when this thing opened. I remember what a huge deal it was. I mean, Eddie was a star, but he was not a megastar. This film made him a megastar. This film put him way over the top and uh, made an outrageous amount of money. It made Martin Brest a much bigger director than he ever could have imagined that he he, he would ever become. Mm. Uh, the soundtrack sold outrageous amounts. Um, Judge Reinhold's career was made with this thing. I mean, this movie was was just a spectacular success. And um, you know what? It just it, It's another example of, of Eddie Murphy taking a movie over. I can't imagine anybody else in that part. Yeah, Eddie, and, and, and you know, Eddie was one of the few... Uh, that was not a Sarah, um, an, an SNL-related movie. No, that's right. So Eddie was one of the few cats to come off F- SNL 
and 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 make his way as a movie star without it being a sort of SNL sort of project, you know, a sort of Lauren right. Michaels a sort of production. Eddie Eddie, you know, just came into mainstream Hollywood, uh, uh, sort of doing this thing. He wasn't repeating a shtick that he did from SNL. You know, he wasn't doing you know uh, Jerry Lewis or, or or Dean Martin or anything like or, or Gumby or whatever. Um, so um, uh, it was a unique sort of feat. Uh, that uh, that he had, you know. Um, so yeah, yeah, and and you know what? What's it been now? Um, Forty years, Eddie Murphy. Yeah, yeah. Has Isn't been that a, amazing? A mainstream Hollywood movie star, forty years, four decades. That's that's astounding. It is astounding, and the only person who can measure that, who can hold up to that kind of longevity, is the other star we're going to talk about, also with a long relationship with Paramount, Tom Cruise. Yeah, the, age, the ageless freaking Tom Cruise. Um, two Tom Cruise movies on four K. For the season, uh, Michael Mann's Collateral with uh, Jamie Foxx and uh, the original Top Gun, which I also worked for. It's funny. these are, I remember working all of these all these as an usher. Uh, Top Gun is in a steel book, uh, just like uh, the um, uh, Trading Places, exact same kind of a steel book. And um, that also, you know, I'm wondering when we're going to see the Top Gun sequel, because that's been postponed indefinitely until next year. And yeah. that's not going to go streaming. Paramount's not playing that game. So we're going to have to wait a little while before we see that. But uh, Tom Cruise in Top Gun, still a legendary performance. Uh, Kelly McGillis, the music, the Tony Scott direction, the whole thing. You know what? Val Kilmer in Better Times. I mean, it still holds up. It's still nostalgic. And it's got a, a you know a heap of great extras on it. Most of them on the Blu-ray but uh, what a gorgeous movie. The sound is to unbelievably die for. I remember one of the things with the sound in Top Gun was that our theater was playing it too loud. Yeah. Because, because, <laughs> because I remember the, 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 sound, the sound editor. I, took a, I, I later took a, um, a seminar with the sound editor for Top Gun uh, that was sponsored through the Academy. And I remember she was she was talking. It, it was at one point she said, and then I remember when the film debuted at the National. And I thought, yeah. What, what do you remember? She said, I walked in and I wanted to scream because it was too loud. And I thought, oh, damn, I remember when I got there, it was like shaking the walls. I thought that was cool. So <laughs> so the uh, the sound editor didn't like how loud we played it, but, you know, whatever. Uh, collateral, Tim, you know, Collateral, uh, Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx, both cast against type. Jamie Foxx playing kind of a nerd and Tom Cruise playing the bad guy. That was that was quite a quite a shift. It, it was uh, wicked, if I'm not nobody mistaken. Nobody really that remembers was... what a big deal that was. It, it was one of the it was one of the early films, one of the first feature films uh, that was shot uh, HD. I guess it would have been yes. HD. You're right at the time. Um, You're right. Uh, it was. And 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 that was sort of a big deal. It was it, it was it was an interesting thing. I remember being sort of critical of that at the time because it, 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 it on the on the theater screen, HD was still still a little present. It was a little harsh. Um, yeah. uh, to, to my, to my, to my viewing, you know, I was, you know, a 35 millimeter purist for a long time, but, but, but nevertheless, it, it sort of got the ball rolling on that. Uh, uh, Michael Mann just sort of being a hit of the curve when it came to a whole lot of that stuff. Jada Pinkett in that film too, by the way, she was really, yep. really good in that movie. Yep. Yep. It's uh it was a really, really unusual film for everyone involved and they all did a great job. And I think it's a very underrated Michael Mann film. Um, also for a couple of interesting, uh, uh titles here, I'm going to give us another giveaway which is V for Vendetta. Uh, send us an email that just says V, just the letter V in the subject line if you want to get the uh, 4K Ultra HD of V for Vendetta. Uh, this was um, not hugely successful at the time. I think it, I think it dates okay a mm. little bit. Um, you know, this uh, it, it, it's 
the the politics of it are a little bit um i mean they were out of date at the time somewhat too the whole guy fox thing yeah uh the but uh, it's okay it lives it, look it live it makes sense in the context of the uh, of a sort of wachowski canon of yeah. films if you think about the matrix films and this and all that kind of stuff james mcteague i think it directed, directed it yeah uh, but nevertheless uh, the wachowskis sort of wrote it so it makes sense in that sort of can hugo weaving of course right back there and natalie uh, portman and, yeah natalie so, portman very so, good you know but yeah, but it, you know, it, yeah, it sort of makes sense as a part of that grouping of films. Yeah, uh, so it, 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 for its moment, good thing. Anyway, looks gorgeous on 4K as they all do, and there's a great conversation between James McTeague and La- uh, McTeague and Lana Wachowski uh, on this, along with the audition from Natalie Portman, which is fun to watch. I had never seen that before. Hmm. She, she auditions very, very well. Um, also on 4K, uh, the the uh, Harry Kume movie Daughters of Darkness on 4K Ultra HD, the first 4K from Blue Underground, cool lenticular cover, uh, great kind of uh, exploitation film, has two audio commentaries on it, one with uh, star John Carlin and journalist David Del Valle, and then uh, co-writer director Harry Kimmel. Uh, on the other audio commentary, uh, both of them really good. Lots of uh, interviews and uh, and really really cool um, uh, featurette material, radio spots, a lot of great stuff on this. The if you're not familiar with the film itself, Daughters of Darkness, it mm-hmm. was made 50 years ago. This is its 50th anniversary, yeah. And um, uh, and it's it's uh, effectively kind of a um, it's. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's like a legendary underground, not underground, but an, an exploitation seduction film, and uh, it goes into a really nasty kind of a horror, violent direction, uh, as exploitation films often do, to punish people for all of their lusts and their their desires. But it's incredibly well shot. Uh, the way these two women, uh, you know, kind of plot this. Uh, how to, how to seduce this newlywed couple and to to really undo their lives it's it's a it's a really cool artifact of its day 50 years later kind of fun to watch we also have on 4k ultra hd arnold schwarzenegger in total recall oh wow yeah tim this film looks ridiculous. The well, yeah. What are you going to do uh, in, in that situation? I, I I did the junket for Total Recall way, way, way back in the day, and of course, uh, it's it's it was nothing at all. You know, you know, Verhoeven, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, nothing at all like the sort of Walter Mitty sort of you know, story that it's sort of based on. You know, at yeah. all, uh, which would never, ever, ever have starred Arnold Schwarzenegger. No, <laughs> no. You know, and uh, and I don't know. Uh, and it can't be sort of way it's kind of fun though and it plus is. plus plus rachel ticketon is in that movie and i and i i still adore rachel ticketon oh so good so good for sure uh rounding out all the rest of our 4ks uh want to include for our gift guide and where there will be more on the cine god site but also want to include for our recommendations full metal jacket mm. the alfred the alfred hitchcock classics collection rear window vertigo psycho and the birds and uh, Jaws, the 45th anniversary limited edition. Those all were uh, recently covered on the podcast. We are including those in the gift guide as well. And then uh, lastly, wrapping this all out, uh, the last television 4K that we got here is Westworld Season 3, The New World. Our good friend Sherm was on Season 1, correct, Tim? Yes, yes correct. Sherm Augustus on Season 1 of Westworld, yes. And and he is uh, he was recently announced on season four of uh, Stranger Things. Uh, Stranger which is Things, now. yeah, is it, yeah, out there shooting well, uh, out there shooting in Georgia and uh, New Mexico. 
Well, season three of Westworld continues to push the envelope. I uh, I was skeptical when this was announced, but I think they have continued to make it a really interesting show season over season. And uh, here it is. They've got six featurettes uh, that deal with uh, uh, the, the 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 making of the thing. They've got four other featurettes that are that are sort of uh, more broadly oriented toward the the, the world. And um, a really interesting uh, set of uh, mini featurettes uh, about the episodes themselves. So a lot of behind-the-scenes material there. We also have Mad Max, the original Mad Max on 4K Ultra HD. The Ooh. first 4K from Kino Lorber. Um, looks amazing in 4K. Honestly, amazing. This film is still great. I'm so grateful that we finally got the original version without the American dubbing because the Australian accents totally make it. Yeah. Tons, of, tons of great special features on here. Uh, including an audio commentary with the original art director, David Egby, who was the cinematographer, the um, special effects artist, Chris Murray. Uh, there's a new interview with George Miller, who didn't sit down for an audio commentary, but he did sit down for a, uh, an interview. And um, if you want to know where the, the DNA for you know Mad Max Fury Road comes from, boy, this, this gives it all to you. It's really, really terrific. Uh, a little featurette on, uh, on Mel Gibson as well and on the Mad Max phenomenon. And then lastly, the 4K set that I think everybody's been waiting for forever, Back to the Future, the yeah. ultimate trilogy, 35th anniversary, 4K, all the Back to the Future films, all three Back to the Future films, Robert Zemeckis' uh, shining moment. Um, Tim, have you watched all three of these films again anytime lately? Oh, 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 I had reason to watch uh, the third one uh, about, about a year ago. And, and I remember that that was, you know, that was not a particular, but I remember thoroughly enjoying that film. That's the one that sort of takes place in the old West and all that. Yeah. Uh, Mary Steenburgen. Virgin. I, I, I remember particularly enjoying that film. Uh, uh, so, you know, uh, the first two films are, you know, fantastic. Uh, you know, one, one of the, one of the, one of the sets of sequels, uh, along with say like the alien sequels or something like that, where the first, the second film was as good as the first film. Uh, it played in the same sort of way, but was different enough to still be engaging. But then again, I enjoyed the third one too. What can I say? I remember so well that the, it was the day before the release of the third film. They had a marathon at the Avco in Westwood, where we used to see a lot of screenings. Oh yeah, and it was it was billed as the back to back to back to the future marathon. And they had a simul. <laughs> it was I have the pin, man. I still have the button, my collector's <laughs> button. And I, I they had one going at the Cinerama Dome as well. And I went to the Avco, bumped into an old friend that I hadn't seen in years who had just come out from Texas. And we're like, rock on, dude. You know, it was just there was a whole and everybody sat down. And at 8 o'clock, we watched Back to the Future. At 10 o'clock, we watched Back to the Future 2. And then at 12.01, they started Back to the Future 3. The crowd went crazy. And at 2 o'clock, I walked out of there after six hours of Back to the Future. My eyes were bleary. I was not safe to drive. But damn it, I was happy. Oh, man, man. Michael J. Fox, of course. And, I, and what can I say? Adore, still adore Michael J. Fox. Yeah. One of just an upstanding, all-around great guy. Um, and the extras on here are just superb. I mean, they're just superb. There's a whole thing on audition tapes. You won't believe who you're going to see on this. It's it's a fantastic set of surprises, the audition tapes, lost, lost audition tapes. Um, there's a the six-part documentary on the making of it. There are deleted scenes. There are tons of archival featurettes, interviews, audio commentaries, 
um, restoring the DeLorean. Uh, I mean, it's it's just it's phenomenal. You can't. I mean, you could. It's not just the three the six hours of the three films. It is hours and hours and hours of bonus features that you could just watch forever. You could you could fill up your holiday uh, vacation just watching Back to the Future material, and I would highly recommend it. The transfers are great. They are colorful. Um, it's wonderful. It's nostalgia, and I I live for it. So Back to the Future. Tim, what else should do, are we including in our gift guide? Uh, it looks like in the gift guide down here, uh, this is all the 4K stuff that we're doing, right? Well, let, uh, let, let's move to, to TV. Oh, let's, let's do some TV, TV stuff. Some... Uh, uh, yeah, okay. Let, yeah. Yeah, let's do some TV stuff because actually I've been looking at this. And I know that you're a big fan of the Crown series, and we have the complete third season of the Crown. Uh, the new season of the Crown started started there not too terribly long ago, um, um, if I'm not mistaken. But this is the complete third season of the Crown. Yeah. Um, um, uh, the, the, the Crown series. Now, um, uh, this to me, after 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 the complete my complete um, uh, engagement in the Downton Abbey run, right through that feature film, I yeah. had to take a, a, a a break from our anglophile friends for a moment so you know a good deal more about the crown than i do well um, i, I, I uh, just the like the casting of the crown well yeah yeah what are you going to do you got uh, uh, olivia coleman uh, uh claire floyd uh, uh these you know these sort of wonderful actor milda stanton uh, uh uh these sort of wonderful actresses but I, how how was this series shaped i was not i didn't really understand how you ended up with all these people playing queen uh, qe2 at different well, periods in her in her in her reign you know what it, it's it's interesting they every season kind of uh, frames a new drama in the saga of the royal family so it, the continuity is not uh, as consistent as one might think you know mm. the 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 fourth season obviously is going to be very princess diana centric uh so you know they they've they've decided that each season is going to frame out a different dramatic episode from the 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 story of the royal family and and queen elizabeth in particular so uh, to that extent it's a very it's very kind of episodic but it's season episodic and uh it's it's a lot of fun olivia coleman is wonderful in this third season uh she of course played you know a uh won her oscar playing a, a very different british queen yeah. queen anne um and uh I, to that extent i would also add in there's a national geographic dvd that has been released that is a nice companion piece to the crown it's called being the queen and uh if you want to kind of ground the crown in a little bit more reality uh this archival look at the life of queen elizabeth ii who of course is still alive um it has a lot of wonderful stuff in it so you can kind of compare all of the events that are shown in the crown to the actual events uh, that are depicted in this documentary so being the queen nice companion piece to the crown the third season I absolutely love Buck Rogers in the twenty in, in the uh, in the twenty fifth century uh, from the late seventies early eighties two three seasons of Buck Rogers uh, starring the, uh, the the wonderful Gil Gerard and Aaron Gray. Um, what we have here uh, is the complete series Buck Rogers in the in the twenty fifth series. Uh, this is fantastic, man. It, it's really great. It's the the complete collection of Buck Rogers, which, by the way, they have also released. Uh, this is from Kino Lorber. They've also released the original theatrical cut of the pilot. You know, they did the same thing with Battlestar Galactica. These mm -hmm. are both both Glenn Larson productions on television, and they did theatrical releases of the of the two pilots to make a little bit of extra money. So there's there's that theatrical Battlestar Galactica, and there was a theatrical Buck Rogers, and that's been released all, all eighty nine whopping minutes of it uh, on Blu Ray as well. But I still got to say, you, you, you seriously want to have the, uh, the series on, uh, on Blu-ray. It is just a whole lot of fun. Gil Gerard, 
Um, you know, I saw him at Battle of the Network Stars a couple of years. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I, forgot, I forgot about all that kind of. We were we were swapping yeah. some of those old sort of things that the networks used to do back in the day. And those yeah. Battle of the Network Stars were always sort of fantastic. You'd see all these guys. They come out. They do all kinds of wacky stuff. And Gil Gerard, who was kind of a buff dude, yeah. you know, it was sort of, sort of like not fair, really, <laughs> with with him and Battle of the Network Stars. Like, who's going to beat Gil Gerard? Well, they are audio commentaries for all 10 uh, selected episodes on here that they they kind of uh, separated out. Now, there's also an audio commentary with the film, a couple of film historians on the, the feature film, um, the, the, which is different. Um, the, uh, the audio commentary for the theatrical feature is also on the television set. So I just want everybody to be clear on that. You're... You, you can you can get the theatrical film with the TV series, but the audio commentaries on 10 episodes are different from what you get on the theatrical cut of the film. Ah. So don't necessarily confuse those. But um, there's also an Aaron, Aaron Gray interview. Oh, wow. there's an interview with there's an interview with Tom Christopher, who played Hawk in that rebooted kind of semi rebooted second season. You know, they switched it up a little bit in the second season. Yeah. Um, and added that Hawk character. Uh, but how great is Aaron Gray on this show? Wilma Deering. Gosh, darn it. Yeah, she's I, look, look, crazy sexy in that sort of thing that she was wearing, but also uh, a colonel and a pilot, every bit as badass as yep. uh, Buck was, and uh, and you had to love that in the you know in the late seventies, early eighties. I some of the highlights of my of my youth were uh, watching Buck uh, disco dance with uh, Princess Ardala. <laughs> <laughs> and then watching the uh, Mel Blanc voiced robot Tweaky say "bitty bitty 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 get down." Uh, as corny as that was, <laughs> it was a whole lot of fun. Oh, fantastic stuff, man! Couldn't go wrong with that. Is this Mission Impossible set uh, the, the the old Mission Impossible series, the nineteen sixty six Mission Impossible is. series, the complete sure series is. Mission Impossible? You gotta love this. It is indeed. This is the complete Mission Impossible from uh, CBS and Paramount, and it is absolutely spectacular. Uh, it is uh, it is seven seasons all jammed together on this one big brick of a boxed set. And you know what? It's amazing how how you, you, when you think about how limited you are in the idea that you have a bunch of people who get an assignment and the the message self destructs and then they've got to put on disguises and somehow take this thing how many seasons and how many episodes can you squeeze out of that like how mm -hmm. many missions can you do how many disguises can you do turns out you can do a whole lot and you can do a lot with the premise and they, they yeah. the show was great it's just and not not to mention show. you know launching launching that movie series but i love that that show for one thing it was very clever because you know yeah sure at the beginning of the series he would you know he open up that folder and you have all those subtle photographs of the teams that he would pick and but you know and often you know barney was always there but every now and again the team would switch up just a little bit uh and uh you know i i i love that series uh plus like i said uh, um uh, uh, uh barney uh on that series uh uh greg morris yep you know you one of one of the early sort of examples of 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 a brother a black man being on a television series and being a part of the sort of mainstream dynamic of the show him on that show ivan dixon on hogan's heroes yeah uh, uh bill cosby on i spy uh, yeah. Uh, 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 yeah, and you know, and 40, 50 years ago, and it was really, really just wonderful stuff to see uh, way back in the day. Pioneering figures all. And uh, you're absolutely going to love this set. I mean, this is a phenomenal set, beautifully put together, wonderful transfers of all the episodes, all of them on Blu-ray, uh, colorful, bright, 
wonderfully mastered. It just you couldn't you couldn't hope for a better box set for a really really classic show. Um, for a more recent show is Steven Universe. I know there are a lot of fans out oh, there Rebecca about Steven. Yeah, about Steven Universe, the Steven Universe uh, complete collection from Cartoon Network. This is a very very nice set as well. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, it, it again. I realize that not everybody is a Steven Universe fan, but uh, if you, if you are. This is a wonderful, wonderful gift to uh, give to somebody who would be uh, very appreciative of finding this in their stocking. Yeah, I actually dig that. I look, I, uh, I, Rebecca Sugar, I think, is a really, really, really sort of uh, uh, extraordinary sort of animator and sort of sensibility, uh, and she's one of the few women who sort of like yes. are hitting up series like that. So she's she's really sort of fantastic. Um, I see here Saturday Night Live, the early years. What have we got going on here? That is the best of seasons one through five. You know, they were releasing Saturday Night Live. Uh, 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 seasons uh, one at a time. I think for the first three seasons, I think they got them out, and then they realized that it was, it just it was not gonna it was not gonna work. Mm. Once you, once you move past the the Eddie Murphy Joe Piscopo group, it's it's it kind of starts to be diminishing returns, right? Mm. Like those subsequent groups, yeah, it's great. You get into Dana Carvey and Mike Myers, and you know, but but at a certain point, it, they're just not as memorable. Those first two groups, the Bill Murray, John Belushi people, and then the Eddie Murphy, Joe Piscopo crew. Mm. And then after that, it, it all kind of, so anyway, this is the first five seasons and they've, uh, they've cherry picked a lot of really, really wonderful stuff and put it out in a, uh, in an absolutely terrific time life uh, set volume one and volume two, six discs per 12 discs all together from 1975 to 1980. It's pretty that, great period. That, that's an interesting story. Well, you know, look, that's our that's our you know uh, early Saturday Night Live. You know, first first yep. years of watching that show, watching the show. Now, as I as I remember a whole lot of those episodes, you would have to know, particularly with the Chevy, some of the Chevy Chase bits. You got to know who Gerald Ford is, right? Because all that falling down, yeah. <laughs> you know, is all directly related to. So, so there's a sort of uh, a historical set of knowledge that you have to have in order to get some of those jokes. From the early Saturday, from the early Saturday Night Live, uh, which is which is sort of interesting. Gilder, some, but you know, some of that goofy stuff that Gilda Radner and Bill and Bill Murray were doing, that stuff still plays. Oh yeah, for yeah, sure, absolutely. Uh, I also want to make mention for the Star Trek fans, the Captain's Collection. These are uh, this is a collection of uh, of four documentaries where William Shatner kind of explores the Star Trek universe and the world of fandom and everything pertaining to it. And they're all put together on what's called the Captain's Collection Explorations by William Shatner. Uh, and it includes the Captains, mm. where he talks to Patrick Stewart and Avery Brooks and Kate Mulgrew and Scott Bakula and even Chris Pine, which I would I could I could do without. No offense to Chris Pine, I just don't <laughs> consider those films canon. Uh, and then there's also the captain's close up, which is uh, additional interview footage, uh, you know, kind of put around, uh, you know, framed out in a different way. Uh, Chaos on the bridge, which is all about how Star Trek: The Next Generation became a reality. And then lastly, get a life, which uh, is a is a joke from the uh, SNL uh, interview, uh, the SNL sketch where you know, yeah. Kirk has uh, he he balls out all the Star Trek fans. Um, and that's his. Uh, that's just a very, very personal uh, essay on his part. So William Shatner anchors the Captain's Collection of four documentaries for Star Trek fans who will not regret getting this. If you've got a Trekkie in the family, and I speak as one, they will love this in their stocking. Absolutely, absolutely. What's this? Let's see. Uh, the Josie and the Pussycats, a complete series. Are we talking about the old cartoon series from way back in the day? 
We are, which is out not just on uh, on a two DVD set, the Josie the Pussycast. The com- That's right, but there is also a Blu-ray release from the Warner Archive collection of Josie and the Pussycats, the complete series, which I am so grateful for because I loved this series growing oh, up. Yeah. I liked I liked Star- Josie and the Pussycats in Outer Space better. Yeah. Um. But uh, you know, I will wait for that to come out, and uh, for now, I will take just the original series, which was very much kind of a Scooby Doo thing. I mean, it's a little bit of the Archies, a little bit of Scooby Doo. Um. And you know, we we love we love Josie and the Pussycats. I even love the live action film. Oh yeah. You know? I thought I thought that was great. Soundtrack. So, sound soundtrack to that movie is fantastic, man. Oh, it's so good. So uh, yeah, two discs, either as DVDs or as Blu-rays. Uh, you definitely want to get it. it. Includes the featurette, the irresistible charm of Dan DiCarlo, the man and his art, paying homage to uh, the the wonderful uh, character designer. So anyway, Josie and the Pussycats. Love that band, and as long as we're talking about you know breaking down barriers, let's remember this was a cartoon yeah. that for kids that created a band that included uh, two white girls and a black girl, and yeah. one of the one of the white girls was a redhead. There's yeah. a lot, you know what I'm saying? Like like let let's let's put a brown girl and a ginger in there, and uh, and 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 make people deal with it, and so, it was pretty great. So forward thinking, and, the, and again, uh, they were all badasses. They were great. Uh, now, now, uh, here's a throwback to the same period, but a completely different sort of vibe. The Flintstones, the complete series. That's it on Blu-ray. Fantastic. Yep, so good. The Flintstones is out. Blu-ray, all six seasons plus two bonus movies. You get the uh, you get the, uh, the 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 two Flintstones feature films uh, thrown in here as well. Um, I I was able to look at a few of these, and I've got to say, I think they did a really, really good job with the transfers, because the artwork is a little bit uneven across the seasons of this show, but they've done a really good job bringing it all kind of together. Uh, It still bothers me that they had two different actors doing the voice of Barney. That still drives me absolutely crazy. That's like when, you know, Dick York becomes Dick Sargent on Bewitched. (laughs) Still still can't wrap my head around that. But... um, Anyway, no, it's it's really good. You can get uh, the Flintstones on Blu-ray. It's fabulous. It includes the the movies, the Flintstones and uh, WWE Stone Age SmackDown, and the original uh, animated feature, The Man Called Flintstone, which is just an absolute delight. The WWE thing is kind of stupid, but um, it, it's pretty great. A lot of featurettes on here as well. It's just wonderful. The Flintstones, which of course was a spinoff from the Honeymooners. Yeah. It was a riff on the honeymooners. Yeah, riff on the honeymooners. Um, I was never a big fan. It won a whole lot of, um, I guess it would be Emmys here this last year, but Schitt's Creek. Um, I see that we have the uh, complete yeah. collection of Schitt's Creek. I wasn't a big fan, but I, but, but I don't know. What, what, do you, what do you think about the Schitt's Creek? I mean, I never, I was never really into it. It won nine Emmys, uh, yeah. which is a big deal, right? I mean, it's the most, it, it literally won the most of any sitcom in history, right? Yeah, which blows me away when we're talking when, yeah, when we're including Cheers and and uh, and uh, and Friends and Seinfeld and and uh, but you know and, and this was the series that I you know I mean I I think I gave I think I gave it maybe five episodes worth uh, and then maybe dipped it back in. How, how many seasons did it did it did it go all together in that uh, se- in in that collection anyway? In this collection, that's a that's a great question. How many seasons did it go? Uh, because you know, I, I just sort of tapped out on on it and it's sort of early. But you know, there are these people who are these complete and total sort of Shit's Creeks uh, yeah. fans. Uh, well, yeah. well, it, uh, it Eugene Levy created it. You know, you, I did Eugene not know that, he was him and Catherine O'Hara. Of course, I did not know he was one of the creators. Yeah, he and Daniel Levy they created it and uh, and star in it, obviously. And 
it, it, I, you know, kudos to them. I mean, it's got a certain Canadian quirkiness to it that I guess we we should have uh, should have expected. But anyway, there it is. Uh, the big the big Emmy winner from this last year. Mm. The Last Dance is that ten part documentary series uh, that, oh, that has to do so with good. That, that, that that fantastic Chicago Bears, uh, Chicago uh, uh, Bulls uh, 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 season with Michael Jordan at the center of it. I will say this about that series. That series sort of changed my sort of baseline feelings about Michael Jordan, um, um, you know, sort of like generally speaking as a human being, that's sort of like, a, you know, never cared for Michael Jordan. Uh, take yeah. that back. Was a big fan of Michael Jordan when Michael Jordan was a Tar Heel. Um, 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 uh, wait, so, you know, we're talking, we're talking a long time ago. And then he became a bull. And, uh, you know, I was a 76er fan. I was a Clippers fan. Uh, you were out here in L.A., of course. We're talking a long time ago now. Yeah, and, and 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 Michael Jordan, and then there are all kinds of sort of political dynamics that popped up that, that that were irritating, that irritated me around Michael Jordan. So over the years, he just and, and you know, and, and here in L.A., you know, we had the lovable, we had the lovable Magic Johnson, Magic Johnson, mm-hmm. a human being who seemed to be exactly the opposite of of uh, you know just as talented, but exactly the opposite. This documentary series, The Last Dance, changed my feelings about Michael Jordan uh, in terms of the kind of person. Uh, he was, and of course, there's a whole sequence in this uh, when we're talking to him that that occurs uh, after the death of Kobe Bryant. Um, so that's really sort of interesting and powerful too. It is, you know, it really is an extraordinary documentary too, just from the the standpoint of filmmaking. I mean, ESPN Films uh, really does some great work from a filmmaking standpoint, and there is a lot of tension and a lot of drama in what is revealed here, and. Uh, it, it really has a, a it's it's just a tremendous piece of filmmaking and a lot of great stuff in here. It includes a gallery book, um, three the, the series itself is on three uh, Blu-rays, uh, and it has four hours of bonus features, including interviews, um, the uh, the the uncut version of the uh, Stuart Scott and Michael Jordan Sunday conversation from June 1998, which has never been seen before. A lot of other archival material. Uh, Sports Center with Scott Van Pelt roundtables. Uh, so you know it, it, this is not just for Bulls fans. This is for not even just for basketball fans. This is for people who want to perhaps immerse themselves in the drama of sport and what it takes to excel at the highest level. And I, I got to tell you, I had much the same feeling. Look, I'm a, I'm a Lakers fan. You know, I've grown up grown up in LA, lived here my whole life. Love everything to do with the Lakers. Love Magic Johnson, love Kareem. A lot of drama went on behind the scenes there with, you know, Worthy and that whole team that we didn't know about. But they can do another documentary about that. This is really fascinating because Chicago is not a showbiz town. L.A. is a showbiz town, and we expected showtime. This was not a showbiz town. This is a blue-collar town, but there was a lot of drama going on behind the scenes, and uh, this does an absolutely luminous job of uh, of, uh, exposing it. Mm. Uh, yeah, Hawaii Five O. Ah, yeah, the new one. Hawaii Five O, uh, Tim, the complete I, series. I just could never. I just couldn't. <laughs> I just couldn't. It's just, the new know, one, the new I series, know. because the reboot. And dude, but you know, the hell with me. This show has been on for ten seasons, uh, ten years. Uh, uh, but yeah. I, I, I'm sorry, man. I can't. I mean, I did my my McGarrett. My McGarrett has got to be Jack Lord. <laughs> and if it ain't yeah. Jack Lord, it ain't McGarrett. I, same thing. I had the same same reaction with that uh, with the reboot of uh, Magnum PI. 
And, you know, so I don't know. I guess you just have to you fall into a certain age range and you you, you connect yourself to something. And my Tom, Tom Selleck has to be my Magnum P.I. Jack Lord has to be my McGarrett. These people, I don't know who the hell these people are. <laughs> well, I, I, I concur. And I'm going to agree with that. But here's the thing. If you are a fan of the yeah. rebooted Hawaii Five-O, if this is your Hawaii Five-O, it's a great box set. Ten yeah, seasons. Yeah. 10 seasons, a ton of discs, 20 hours of special features, alternate endings and deleted scenes and behind the scenes and gag reels and on and on and on. It's just, it's endless. If you don't like this series, then this is a doorstop. If you love this series, this is a hell of a brick to get in your stocking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, dude, dude, forget about me. I'm the same way, by the way, with that new MacGyver series. Same thing. Just can't. I'm like, what are you doing? (laughs) What are you doing? Oh, over here, but whatever. Get over me. And we also have Criminal Minds. For people who love Criminal Minds, CBS has given us another great box set there. Uh, 15 seasons, damn it, Tim. 15 seasons that's yeah. been on, on the air. How, yeah. did, how the hell did that happen? You know, and, and what's just broadly speaking, way long time ago, you would, we had one or two series uh, per decade that would really pull off something sort of amazing. You had, the, you had Bonanza. Pulled off some 25, 30 years on the air. You had you had you had mashed pulled off a a, a crazy long run. Uh, the Flintstones, of course, and, on the animated side, and and, and and the Simpsons lately. But lately, in the past decade uh, or, or or two decades, there have been a whole lot of television programming that just pull off these really amazing runs of a decade or more. I know. Of seasons, and I that did that was simply not the case when we were coming up, man. Every blue no. moon that would happen, every blue moon. I know it's amazing to me. I look at things like Criminal Minds, and you know all the Law and Orders, all the, and the CSIs. Oh my gosh! You know NCIS. I mean, these shows run forever now. They really yeah. do all of, all the procedurals. They just go forever and ever and ever. Um, you know, here's an, uh, so anyway, seventeen hours of featurettes and things on Criminal Minds. I, I, you know, I couldn't get into any of it. I, I tried to watch some of it. I just, I, I don't love the show enough. Yeah. But it's, it's a hell of a set. Um, and then also speaking of, The Office ran for nine seasons. Yeah. Which you know, the original British one ran for what one season? <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's very <laughs> I mean, strange. You know, I mean, Ricky Gervais, he did it for one season, and then they booted it up here, and it ran for nine seasons with Steve Carell. Um, very, very funny. Ricky Gervais, if you remember when he hosted the Golden Globes one time, yeah. he kind of took a crack at that. And he, and he, and he, you know, he took a little Steve, Steve Carell crack from the podium about how, you know, like, uh, I'm the guy that started this whole thing. And they went to, and they cut to a close up of Steve Carell, who was looking really angry, obviously all put on. And Steve Carell pantomimes with his mouth and his face and his, and his hands. I will kill you. And it was, it's just, it's, it's, it was, it was very funny. So yeah. Anyway, uh, the office nine seasons on Blu-ray. This is an incredible set. Uh, the show was never really that good looking to begin with. It wasn't that well shot. Well, slightly on purpose, that whole set of on purpose, but, but nevertheless, nevertheless, not, not a great looking show. Not a great looking show, but they kind of redeemed themselves on Blu-ray. It really does look good on Blu-ray. It's very sharp. It's very nice. Not too colorful. Doesn't look candy colored or anything, but they really kind of spruce it up. It's got a nice tenor to it. Um, tons of deleted scenes and their extended episodes and featurettes and table reads and audition tapes. And oh my gosh, there's just so much on so much stuff on here. It's just hours and hours and hours of great stuff. If you are a fan of The Office, holy cow, you're going to love this wonderful gift wonderful wonderful gift 
Ah, uh, is that everything? Is that everything that, from that, the uh, from the TV universe? That, that is everything from the TV universe. I was going to bump over to some classic movies if you wanted to do. Do some it. Of those. Dive in. Let's dive in. Uh, um, I, I see here that what is this? Uh, uh, the Godfather Coda. Oh the, my the, gosh! The death of Michael Corleone. What what the hell is going on there? So the uh, the Godfather Coda is the so Francis Coppola rewrote. Uh, or I shouldn't say rewrote, re-edited, and mm. kind of reconceived all of the uh, all the, the entirety of the Godfather three uh, to kind of fix what everybody said was wrong. Mm. And he's been very successful at this lately. I mean, not so much with um, uh, Apocalypse Now, which he just keeps tinkering with yep. to, oh, to, that, to, that to Redux no, and all that. Yeah, yeah. But Cotton Club, his Cotton Club Redux is great. Yeah. I mean, really great. It it sort of elevates the story of of played of the the two brothers played by you know uh, Gregory Hines and his brother. Yeah, it Maurice. elevates Maurice. It elevates that story to to parody with the Richard Gere character, which is what was always intended. That was supposed to be a contrast, and so uh, that's much better. And I think what he does here is also better. I don't know that it actually fixes all the problems. I think there are still some problems in it, but. It's really fascinating to to watch this and to compare it to the uh, the original theatrical release cut, which got you know Oscar nominations and all. Yeah. Um, and, and it has an introduction from Coppola. I wish it had a commentary. It really could use a commentary. I'm hoping that there is some uh, more elaborate release of this on 4K along with the other films due next year. I, I suspect there is. I've heard rumors that there is. So um, you know, some people may want to wait for that. But in the meantime. Uh, this is a, this is, it's, it's plenty. I mean, it's really, really interesting. It's, and it's not bad. He really does, uh, remedy a lot of the things that were wrong with Godfather three. Mm. Uh, Woody Allen's, uh, uh, movie, um, uh, a rainy day in New York, uh, sort of first film since yes. all sorts of controversies and whatnot, but nevertheless, there it is. Woody Allen's new comedy, rainy day in New York did not get a chance to see this for the show. Did you see it? And, and did you, uh, just get a chance to review it as a, as a piece of uh, you know, Woody, Allen, Woody Allen movies? Mark. Mark reviewed it for our, for our site, for cinegods.com. Mark did a little mm -hmm. write-up on it. And I pretty much concur with most of what Mark wrote. I think I like it a little better than he does. It is flawed. It's definitely not, not you know, classic Woody. But I think it, it obviously caught hell a little bit uh, just because of what was going down, you know, with Woody and the culture and cancel culture and everything and all that rather unfairly. But um, it's got some great performances in it. Selena Gomez is very, very good. Elle Fanning is wonderful. Um, you know, Jude Law and Leah Schreiber are fantastic. Timothy Chalamet, I can kind of take him or leave him sometimes. He's starting to get on my nerves mm. a little bit. I'm not looking forward to Dune necessarily. But, mm. um, you know, what I think is good about this is if you get this, I would also recommend picking up um, Apropos of Nothing, the Woody Allen biography, his memoirs, which uh, uh, are a wonderful complement to any movie, but particularly to this one because of where this kind of falls in his career. So, you know that's that's all uh, all highly recommended. Interesting stuff. Um, the I Spit on Your Grave collection. Is this, does this one include uh, the restoration of the film and that little documentary and everything that, that was on that Blu-ray uh, box set? This so is, this has this, this is I Spit on Your Grave. I Spit on Your Grave. Deja vu and growing up with I Spit on Your Grave. That's what this <laughs> this comprises. So it is not it is not the entire massive i spit on your grave canon which i i maybe some rights issues there but this is from uh ronan video and uh you know if this is your it, it, look i spit on your grave is kind of the original feminist revenge exploitation saga and uh if 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 it's not for everyone's taste but it certainly is for some people's taste and it is a lovely lovely box set also comes with a booklet um you know uh some people are 
going to not consider this very Christmassy, but some people will be very, very happy to have this as a gift. And wow. I'm glad I don't know those people and somebody else does. <laughs> the, the Roman holiday, Audrey yeah. Hepburn, more than an icon. Uh, what, what comes with all that? That's, that? that just must be exquisite. So it is. We're giving away three of these. We are giving away three Blu-rays of Roman Holiday, the uh, Audrey Hepburn Oscar-winning romance directed by William Wyler, along with Gregory Peck, one of the all-time classics. Just a beautiful film. Uh, this is from Paramount, and we're giving away three of these. Send us an email with Roman in the subject line, and you will be eligible to win one of these by December 11th. Uh, godsdigigods.com, godsdcinegods.com, name and address in the body of the email. Um, Roman Holiday deserves no additional praise from us. It is, uh, it is, it is an absolutely excruciatingly wonderful movie. Um, yeah. has, a, has a Leonard Malton uh, featurette on here, along with featurettes dealing with the costumes and the, you know, Paramount, it, the Paramount Pictures during the, the era when this film was made, a bit on Dalton Trumbo and The Blacklist, which is a wonderful little uh, detour. Um, Paramount in the 1950s and Remembering Audrey. And then to go with it is this wonderful Blu-ray documentary, Audrey More Than an Icon, which uh, you should absolutely get if you get the one. You should get yeah. the other. Um, this is not from Paramount, but it is it is essential. It is the definitive documentary about Audrey Hepburn and her career and her life and her humanitarian efforts, which were extraordinary. And what an amazing life, you know? I mean, grew up under under the, under Nazi occupation. People forget that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the reasons why 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 uh, Audrey Hepburn was always so so slight was because she had been starved uh, as a child uh, and, and never really had a chance to, to sort of grow. Uh, so she, that slightness that was her uh, sort of uh, trademark was uh, was because of a deprivation uh, yeah. that in her childhood. Uh, really, really Very an, true. Amazz an amazing story. Um, uh, the, the, the Laurel and Hardy definitive, uh, definitive restorations we have? Yeah, we've got we've got Laurel and Hardy material here. So we've got the on Blu-ray the definitive restorations of Laurel and Hardy. This is uh, original nitrate uh, negatives, thirty-five millimeter, were transferred in two K and in four K, and uh, they now have a four-disc set of all of the great, uh, very very best Laurel and Hardy shorts. They look fabulous. They've been beautifully cleaned up. They sound fantastic. Uh, there are commentaries on here that contextualize them and their careers, their lives, and their thousands of photos on here as well. Just absolutely beautiful posters and all kinds of great artwork. Um, people are going to absolutely love this. I mean, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit my daughter down and show her the glories of, of Laurel and Hardy. She will laugh endlessly. And uh, for Laurel and Hardy fans, you can also get from Classic Flicks the uh, Oliver Hardy Harry Langdon film ah. Zenobia, yeah, which which is uh, which is uh, also quite wonderful. Harry Langdon, no substitute necessarily for um, for Stan Laurel, but uh, this is still a really classic film that uh, you know fans of Oliver Hardy in particular will appreciate. Yeah. Uh, Zenobia, a, a a little known and uh, unfortunately forgotten film in many quarters, but they also restored this from the original nitrate elements. Nitrate lives. Yeah, yeah. Interesting little 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 moment in that in, in in their relationship there. Billy Billy Burke in that film too. Love Billy Burke. Oh, she's so good. Yeah. Uh, let's see what else we got here. What about the complete Hal Roach Streamliners collection? This is great. So this is uh, there may be more coming, but so far we have five volumes of Hal Roach's Streamliners. 
And uh, if you if you don't know what the streamliners were, so streamliners, well, here here's here's basically the the idea uh, is that the it has nothing to do with trains, by the way. They 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 go the great lengths to to point this out. So in the in the nineteen thirties, um, there was a demand for movies with shorter running times because a lot of uh, you know a lot of theaters wanted to be able to move more people in and out of theaters faster. And, um, you know, people, a lot of people wanted to cut costs on movies as well. So uh, Hal Roach accommodated and he made these these kind of shortish movies that they called Streamliners. And uh, they were very popular in the 1940s, especially during the war years. And uh, this is five volumes of those. The first volume is the Tracy and Sawyer military comedies. Uh, volume two are Westerns. Volume three are the taxi comedies, which are very, very funny. They star William Bendix and Joe Sawyer. Very wonderful. William Bendix is great. Yeah. Uh, volume four are musicals, uh, which which are really actually kind of fascinating. Alan Hale Jr. and Noel Beery Jr. And a lot of really interesting people show up in these things. It's really kind of fascinating when you go, oh, I, hey, look, there, there he is. Uh, and then uh, the volume five includes the, uh, the Pitts and Somerville plus other rarities. So these are, you know, kind of off comedies that star some of these other other teams and some things that, uh, you know, didn't really fit in any of these others. So five volumes of these Hal Roach features that were designed to just kind of fill a niche need at the time. It was really, really fascinating. Uh, Tim, I also want to make mention of uh, something very selfish here. The director's cut of Tom DeCillo's Delirious oh, on yes. Blu-ray. Yeah. On Blu-ray with Steve Buscemi, Michael Pitt, Gina Gershon, and uh, Allison Lohman. Um, you will remember, and some of our podcast listeners might remember, that my wife was, yeah. the, uh, was the executive on this. She was the liaison from the production company. And I did podcasts with Mark yeah. rem- remotely because he was here in L.A., <laughs> And I was in New York living off of my wife's per diem uh, while she went to the set every morning or the office, the production office, and uh, and had to sort of manage all the particulars of this production. And um, I, I kind of got to roam around New York for the month of October in 2005 and had a grand old time doing it. And then, of course, once in a while, I would have the privilege of going to dinner with Tom DeCillo and everybody else and uh, and Steve Buscemi. And it was quite a, quite a fun experience. But uh, it was it was a great experience for my wife who who had a great time on this film. It was just it's terrific. Basically, the story of a uh, a paparazzi mm-hmm. or a paparazzo played by Steve Buscemi and um, the this this kind of homeless guy played by uh, Michael Pitt who becomes his sidekick. Really interesting film, one of Tom DeCillo's best, and uh, what a great director's cut this is. Tons of special features, wonderful uh, commentary from Tom DeCillo that that. I, I I actually lived vicariously through a lot of the stuff he talks about, and um, uh, some wonderful wonderful uh, featurettes and behind the scenes stuff on here. A lot of stuff I can't even talk about. A lot of stuff that doesn't show in these featurettes. I wish I wish I could share the stories, like like the morning that the phone rang really early and uh, and woke my wife up, and uh, it was the uh, it was the the grips who were getting to prepare a, a, a location one morning. And it wasn't open. They didn't have the key to it like they were supposed to. And it was locked. And uh, they could either, you know, wait and delay the production. Or my wife said to them, and I, I was sitting there. I heard I heard the phone. She says, can you take the hinges off the door? And and they're like, we could take the hinges off the door. She said, take the hinges off the door. So they let themselves in, took the hinges off the door. 
Filmmaking, filmmaking, yeah. and film production, baby. That, that's what I call producing. That's a producer right there. That's a producer. Yep. That's my wife. <laughs> there it is. Did I do I see Popeye here as a part of that series? Is that is that of the, of the when we're in the classic movies? Is that Popeye? I, it is. I decided to throw this in there for the for the gift guide. Uh, Robin Williams and Shelley Duvall in Popeye um, oh, on Robert Blu-ray Robin film. Oh wow. Yeah, that's on Blu-ray, and I figure, you know, we're, we're all missing Robin Williams, and COVID-19 has, has screwed up our year. Uh, Robin Williams' film is is just the tonic. Yeah, I'll say. Uh, almost plays like, it's sort of, sort of avant-garde, if that, that Popeye now. When we look at it now, you know, from, yeah. what is that, 1980 or something like that, Robert Altman? Film? Yeah. You look yeah. at that movie now, and it's just like, wow, this is some really hitty, hitty stuff <laughs> that's going on in that movie. Um, did you want to do? Did you want to do any of the stuff down in the Criterion Collection? Yeah, let's do that. Let me jump to the Criterion's. <laughs> I see the um, I see the essential Fellini, the essential oh. Fellini. Uh, so, uh, so what what are they including? What's a part of that this, set? This is unbelievable. This is a it's shaped like a big boxed record collection box, like in the old days when people collected LPs in box sets. That's what this is shaped like. This is amazing. I can't even get into all the extras on this. I barely scratch the extras because so, so many of them are feature documentaries as well. It's just dozens and dozens of hours of extra material. It is phenomenal. Um, these are 15 Blu-ray special edition collector set uh, uh, DVDs or Blu-rays of the following films. Variety Lights, The White Shake, Eviteloni, La Strada, Il Bedone, Knights of Cabiria, La Dolce Vita, Eight and a Half, Juliet of the Spirits, Fellini wow. Satyricon, Roma, Amarcord, and The Ship Sails On, and 1997's Intervista. Wow. Um, that's, 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 I mean, it's not the complete Fellini, but it's pretty damn close. Yeah. So and so uh, it's, have it's everything the you need. There. Yeah, everything you need is right there. That's fantastic. Man. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's gorgeous and beautiful. And uh, they've also given us uh, a couple of films that I never would have expected to show up on, on Criterion, which are great for the holiday season. Parasite and the Irishman. All right, yeah, yeah. Parasite, uh, 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 Bong Joon Ho, of course, yeah. wonderful, wonderful film. Uh, the, the one that Oscar. What was it? Was, was, was that last just, year? It was just this year, dude. It feels this like year? feels like it feels like five years ago, doesn't it? Oh my gosh, uh, <laughs> that's just wow. Anyway, yeah, fantastic I film. Yeah, uh, yeah. I also see, I also see uh, Stephen Freer's uh, The Hit as a part of that collection. Oh, isn't that a great film? I, I I was amazed that this showed up as a criterion. I didn't expect this. Uh, this is from 1984. This is an early Stephen Frears film. Um, you ever seen the hit, Tim? Oh yeah, 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 dude. We're talking. Uh, we're talking to a ridiculously young Tim Roth. Yeah, uh, and Terrence Stamp, of course. Love that movie. Great, great gangster film. Very unconventional gangster film. Made for very, very little money, but uh, really just superb. Yeah, Terrence Stamp and John Hurt are tremendous in it. Uh, Jerry, Jeremy Thomas produced it. Uh, made in 1984. This is a restored digital transfer, uh, and it has the audio commentary from that originally recorded in 2009 with Stephen Frears, John Hurt, and Tim Roth, mm. uh, as well as the screenwriter and uh, the editor. It's great. It's just terrific. I see. I see Jim Jarmusch's <clears throat> film Ghost Dog here. Uh, oh, Forrest so Whitaker again. Uh, you know, one of these sort of classic films, a minimalist sort of gangster film. Uh, you know, doing what Scorsese does, but with like uh, so much less. You know, uh, Forrest Whitaker has to be one of the most interesting actors of the last thirty years. Yeah. I've got to say, he, he for a thing that you know, for for a guy who basically kind of you know, it's funny. We were talking to uh, to Ben Moses the other day, right? The who mm. who created Good Morning Vietnam, who talked about how he was cast in uh, in Good Morning Vietnam, 
that the part for Forrest Whitaker was originally a white guy. And they they asked him, they said, you know, could he could he be a black guy? Because we'd like to put Forrest Whitaker in the part. He's like, yeah, hell yeah. You know, and he winds up being the scene stealer in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. He steals scenes from Robin Williams. <laughs> Which was and then to go from that and then know, to go from that to go 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 ahead. He does the same thing in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yes, he does, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, and then and then to go and do stuff like Ghost Dog and to show up in things like The Crying Game, where he's putting on a British accent, and then you know he wins an Oscar for The Last King of Scotland. I mean, he's he's just become such an interesting actor, and he takes such unusual parts. Yeah, the whole while building quite a career as a as a substantial director too, producer yeah. and director uh, over the course of the last twenty five years. So yeah, Forrest Whitaker as Ghost Dog, Jim Jarmusch. You know, I mean, you, you got to love Jim for sure. Uh, let's see the Irishman. Um, uh, there you go. Oh, the, I mean, look, I'm not a huge fan of the Irishman, but what a, what an absolutely gorgeous, uh, uh, Blu-ray this is. I mean, it's, it, this is also just jammed with features. This is a virtual film school on a box, which is what Criterion always likes to do. I mean, it is, it is jam packed, absolutely jam packed. Um, you know, it, it has the anatomy of the scene on here that was made in uh, 2020 that shows, uh, you know, how, Scorsese's process per se, uh, lots of uh, interviews, featurettes. I mean, it's just it's a beautiful, beautiful set. So I may not watch the movie again, but I'm sure as hell going to watch all those extras again. Oh, I had an issue with all of that sort of CGI younging yeah. of younging of people. It's all very distracting uh, to me. Yeah, uh, Moonstruck, an, an exquisite film uh, from 1987 with, with, with Cher and Danny Aiello, and uh, it's just this this wonderful, wonderful movie. Uh, the, can't can't wait to hear about that yes this is great as well has a brand new interview with john patrick shanley on it which is just superb uh and uh lots of lots of vintage stuff as well from shanley about how he developed it and how he wrote it and that's really the most interesting stuff on here is is you know moonstruck is considered one of the great american screenplays of all time and uh, john patrick shanley coming from the stage you know was was not an experienced screenwriter per se so uh this uh this really is uh, all that and more this is uh the process of a, a an american classic uh we've also got claudia wilde's girlfriends which is an unusual and unexpected release on from criterion this is a 1978 film uh that is sort of a kind of a an, an unheralded indie film from the late 70s that a lot of people haven't necessarily focused on but it really is a great time capsule it comes from the same moment when paul mazursky made an unmarried woman yeah and and you had a lot of other sort of um late stage second wave feminist movies that were sort of trying to capture a moment when feminism was was trying to figure out what it meant for that generation and that's uh, and in this case you know that's sort of where this this is is rooted melanie mayron a very young melanie mayron pre 30 something um stars here as a uh, a woman trying to you know be an artist on the uh, on the upper west side yeah. and and looking to find herself in life and uh it really is just a just an absolutely beautiful film really a beautiful film i, I see a set of, of of collections that you have here you want to want to want to bounce through a few of those including sure. this, this this rock hudson collection from kino i think yeah, so uh, here we go. We're going to go through these real quickly. Rock Hudson collection from Kino. And some of these we've, we've covered previously. Uh, but this is the new one. Bengal Brigade, the Golden Blade, and Seminole. Not necessarily his best performances, but three kind of under under underrated performances and underrated uh, films. Uh, Seminole being probably the better one there, kind of one of those old-fashioned, uh, politically incorrect westerns. Um, <laughs> you, you know, yeah. you know what I'm, yeah, you know yeah, what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, rock yeah. landed there. Yeah. 
What are you gonna do? Uh, then we've and then we we previously covered the Deanna Durbin collection, which has it started with Eve, three smart girls grow up, a hundred men and a girl. Uh, the Tony Curtis and Carol Lombard collections, the Tony Curtis collection with Forty Pounds of Trouble, The Great Imposter, The Perfect Furlough, and Carol Lombard collection, No Man of Her Own, uh, Man of the World, and Fast and Loose. So those are all really, really great collections from uh, Kino. What, what's, from, in the, uh, what's in the what's in the what's uh, in the the Jewish Soul? Ten Ten Classics of Yiddish Cinema collection. What the hell is in that? That is so interesting. Um, so Yiddish cinema, something that completely was off of my radar for the most part, is something that has always thrived in the United States. It's been its own kind of independent separatist cinema from, from the earliest days. And um, Kino went to the well and they put together this five disc set that combines 10 classics of Yiddish cinema going all the way back into the 1930s, believe it or not. So this starts in the 1930s and goes up into the 1950s. And it includes the Dybbuk mm-hmm. from 1937, which is fairly well known. And then other films that I had never heard of, including uh, Edgar Ulmer's American Matchmaker from 1940. You know, Edgar Ulmer, a, very, a great Poverty Row director who, who made a lot of uh, classic indie films at the time. The Yiddish King Lear, mm-hmm. 1935. Um, and then uh, some films by a filmmaker named Joseph Seiden, who made Her Second Mother in 1940, Motel the Operator. Uh, in 1939, and then Three Daughters in 1950, and then there's a film uh, that he made in 1940 that I think is actually maybe the best of all of the Joseph Seiden films is uh, Ellie Ellie, E-L-I from 1940. Um, very, very powerful. So, really an interesting collection of films that speak specifically to a certain community that was um, the, the Yiddish-speaking community in America, which we often forget exists, and uh, and uh, you know, to Jewish identity in America, it's a really, really interesting collection of films. Yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of the actors that you see roaming around these films, you, you were already watching in all of the sort of mainstream classic American movies of the day. But in Very the context true. of this, so really, really interesting stuff. Um, um, uh, I see uh, a DreamWorks collection, ten movie collection from from the folks over at DreamWorks. Yeah, so let me let me pound these three out right now. So these are Universal has released three three gift sets here, and they're all pretty good. Uh, the DreamWorks 10 movie collection is a Blu-ray box set. It includes the original Shrek, uh, Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron, Madagascar, Kung Fu Panda, How to Train Your Dragon, The Croods, which just has a sequel coming out about now, Home, Trolls, The Boss Baby, uh, with, you know, Alec Baldwin doing the baby's voice, and Abominable. So uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's the, the DreamWorks Illumination uh, collection the, with Movies Anywhere codes. And that's going to be great to keep the kids busy for the entire season. They also have the, uh, uh, sorry, that's the DreamWorks 10 movie collection. Then we have the Illumination 10 movie collection. Mm -hmm. I'm getting getting ahead of myself here, which is Despicable Me 1 and 2 and 3. Minions, the spinoff from the Despicable Me movies. Uh, The Secret Life of Pets 1 and 2. Sing, which I really, really love. I think Sing is great. Hop, the Lorax, and the Grinch from the Dr. Seuss line. So, uh, that's the Illumination stuff. Uh, Despicable Me 1 and uh, Sing are probably the best of all of these, though I think there's some fun stuff in the Lorax. And then the last one from Universal are, is the Focus Features 10 Movie Spotlight Collection, which is great. Uh, there's some amazing movies here. Tim, check this out. Lost in Translation, oh, Eternal, wow. Sunshine, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, mm-hmm. Pride and Prejudice, Brokeback Mountain, Atonement, Burn After Reading, Moonrise Kingdom, the theory of everything on the basis of sex and Harriet. Outstanding. Just exquisite. That, 
I mean, there's not there's not a bad movie in that in that in that whole lot. Destix was an absolutely fantastic man. Yeah. The 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 I see uh, under Christmas you've put a few films, including It's a Wonderful Life to 4K. Uh, yeah. Uh, so that's got to look exquisite. So we normally we normally get uh, a ton of Christmas movies that has not happened this year uh, for whatever reason, but. There are three that are worth noting. One is the 4K of It's a Wonderful Life, which uh, I'm going to recommend mainly because it comes with the uh, the the with a digital code on it that you can use to add to your your uh, your your online you know movies anywhere Vudu that that whole deal iTunes. Um, so you can you can add It's a Wonderful Life to that, and that and that makes it easier than doing what I usually have to do, which is to dig stuff out of a box somewhere. But um, Look, I don't, I don't need to tell you this is a great movie. It comes in a steelbook. It's 4K. It's absolutely fantastic. It also includes the colorized version, which you're never going to watch. Mm. <laughs> uh, and, and, then, and then the other two Christmas movies, uh, Charlie's Christmas Wish, which uh, is, is one of these kind of, you know, sappy Christmas uh, movies, you know, th- that show up on, on whatever uh, Hallmark yeah. and all yeah. in Lifetime and all the rest. This one was made by Grindstone, who we make a lot of fun of usually here. But you know what? It's okay. Yeah. Uh, it's it stars Aiden Turner, who uh, you might know from Agents of Shield, and uh, it's got a little dog element to it, like a lot of Grindstone movies do. And uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a nice heartwarming pet and romance movie, and uh, it's got a little bit of a, a tip of the hat to you know the people in the service as well. And then the last Christmas movie here is uh, Worst Christmas Ever by Johnny. <laughs> Chechetelli, uh. and um, this is a this is a low budget kind of anti Christmas comedy about a girl who finds out that she's pregnant on Christmas Eve, yeah. and um, she cannot act. It, it literally everything goes downhill from there. She can't share the news with anybody. It's actually quite funny. It was yeah. made for no money, but it's a very very funny premise. And uh, you know, for people who kind of get sick of Christmas movies being a little full of themselves, this is a nice one to kind of yeah. take some of the steam out. Yeah, yeah, ultimately very funny. Yeah. Uh, let's see what else we've got here. Um, kind of getting down to the wire with everything. I think um, you know. Let me. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. You know what? I'm the anime. I'm gonna hold off on. I'm gonna mention. I'm gonna, the anime will be reviewed on our. Um, on the site uh we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here on the anime and some of the arrow titles we're also going to make mention of on the site with the uh the piece we want to get to our john batham interview pretty quickly but some of this arrow stuff tim um let's let's relive some of the uh some of our past glory being nerds here both of us (laughs) silent running Um, oh man oh man silent running with bruce dern uh, you know, Silent Running was directed by Douglas Trumbull right after he he had a great deal of success uh, doing special effects for 2001. And um, it, it, how, does Silent Running hold up in your opinion today? Well, some of it does, um, actually, if when, when you think about it, uh, particularly particularly some of the special effects and whatnot. Because um, I'm, I'm a fan of the sort of I'm a fan of the sort of practical stuff. And there's yeah. a whole lot of practical stuff in that movie. So I, you know, I, when it comes to that kind of stuff, I, I prefer give me give me a silent running. I, I you know what what is interesting is that uh, this was made obviously coming out of the '60s, and it had uh, a lot of environmental concerns on its mind, and the idea that you know in the future the Earth is barren and we have to preserve the ecosystems of the Earth on this like giant floating greenhouse in space, um, which felt very kind of hippie at the time. But you know what? It's interesting. It certainly does continue to have some resonance today. 
because extinction continues with a lot of species. A lot of what we're talking about, climate change and so forth. The discussion has changed, but a lot of the concerns remain the same. And the movie really has a, a strange kind of throwback resonance in a way. I, I was surprised watching it again, um, how much of it really feels timely, maybe yeah, more yeah. now than then. Uh, Douglas Trumbull, of course, I think it was his directorial debut. I think you said that. And uh, Douglas, yeah. of course, we know mostly as a special effects kind of guy, which is why yeah. these things are sort of practical and, and, and built. And it's just, you know, I, I really kind of dig that. Cool film. Um, also, Flash Gordon. We got a uh, an absolutely beautiful 4K Flash Gordon set here from uh, from Arrow. Um, you, were you a are you a Flash Gordon apologist like I am? Oh, dude, I love Flash Gordon uh, in, in 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 every in every in every variation. I'm a big old Flash Gordon fan. Yeah, well, I uh, this is Sam Jones in that great old campy Flash Gordon. Um, go go Flash go, uh, Clytus, What plaything have you to offer me today? With the fantastic uh, score from Queen. I just love this movie. I can't get enough of this movie. I could watch it over and over and over. It's a riot. And in 4K, it is a stone-cold blast. It is an absolute blast. I love it. I was a big fan of the Nick Castle film, The Last Starfighter, uh, 1984 sort of sci-fi movie, uh, which was just a hell of a hoot to me. You know, it was you know late and, and low budget, coming on the heels of all of the sort of um, um, space operas and drama uh, in, in action films from the middle 70s on up. So by the time you get to 1984, uh, these things are about a buck a dozen. But this one was a whole lot of fun, uh, as far as I was concerned. Lance Guest and Preston and Robert Preston. Uh, in, yeah. in, in this film, I had a, it was a hoot as far as I was concerned. 1984 film, The Last Starfighter. I love that one. Yep, absolutely fun. Um, also, one of the first films to use CG, uh, coming, kind of coming out of uh, Tron, to use CG yeah. effects to any significant degree. And it, it's kind of a cool artifact in that way, too. And what a great um, kind of Spielbergian, wish fulfillment storyline, too. Um, another great Arrow 4K. Arrow's doing some really good 4K stuff here is Pitch Black. With uh, Vin Diesel, mm, uh, yeah. which was a cool kind of a modestly budgeted uh, genre film that spawned two sequels that were significantly bigger budgeted and not as good. David Tui uh, did a great job working with uh, you know a, very, a really cool premise here, and um, Vin Diesel was made a star by this movie. Basically, he became an action star out of out of Pitch Black. Yeah, yeah, that's sort of uh, you know the first of a few sort of uh, series of films that Vin went on to anchor this, those, and and obviously the Fast and Furious films, and uh, even the uh, the Triple X films for a second there. Uh, you know, yeah, Vin Diesel. And then, oh, I see, uh, I see, I see Mall Rats here, Kevin Smith. Yeah, yeah. of of look um, of of Kevin S Smith films. I'm, you know, I'm a fan of maybe like three of of, of uh, however many films he's made over the last thirty years. This, believe it or not, with Shannon Darty and all, it would be one of them uh, from that era, like middle '90s, roaming around yeah. the mall. It's a real sort of time capsule of a period uh, when 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 that kind of thing was in fact a thing. Uh, in the zeitgeist of America. And I, and I think that Kevin kind of got that one right. There's not a whole lot going on in this movie, but this one and his first film, of course, Clerks. And then after that, we, we start getting into some, you know, problematic issues with, with Kevin, <laughs> Kevin Smith films. But when, he, when he's just sort of making little movies about, um, you know, young people of that period, he actually made some, some interesting little movies. I think this is his John Hughes film. Yeah. That's how I describe this. And there are lots of great extras on here, uh, including a thing called Hollywood of the North, which is a new animated making of documentary 
uh, featuring Minnesota crew members who worked on the film. So weird and so totally cool at the same time. Uh, lots of deleted scenes and new interviews. Uh, you know, my mall rat, mall rat memories, which interviews Kevin Smith, who, by the way, has lost a ton of weight. Dude's oh. got himself in shape finally. Finally, he's good, gonna be. He, good. Yeah, good he's him. he's good he's he's, he's got his weight issues under control, and he's gonna be with us a good long time, and that makes me happy. Uh, and then there are the extended and TV cuts on this as well. So it's got the theatrical cut, extended cut, and uh, TV cuts. It's all every, every, more mall rats than you could ever shake a stick at. It's pretty great. Mm. Um, and let's see, let's pick something to go out on. There are going to be more, more arrow titles and then anime titles that we will cover, uh, on cinegods.com, uh, that'll cover this, but let's talk just for a second. Let, let's go out on, um, uh, what, a, what an interesting movie this is to go out on. This is, uh, this is worth, uh, calling attention to the Blu-ray debut of black test car. Mm. I've never heard of black test car. This is a, this is a 1962 film. Um, made in Japan by Yasuso Masamura, which is a the, one of the coolest, funkiest, weirdest genre mashups you could ever want to see. It's basically a an espionage satire that takes place in the Japanese auto industry, and uh, it it launched a whole weird kind of subgenre of these movies. And it is, but it, even though it deals with the Japanese auto industry, it could totally pertain to the German industry, to the American car industry, to the Swedish car industry. Anywhere that has a car industry, this is completely relevant. Uh, dealing with uh, industrial espionage and undercover spies between uh, different companies and, um, and how, how cutthroat and take no prisoners it is to to uh, have to steal intellectual property mm. when you're competing with other car companies, it's really really a cool film. It has um, it, it's never been on Blu-ray before. They finally have it on Blu-ray. Thank you to uh, to Arrow. It's a super cool film, and it includes a Black Test Car and The Black Report, which is a related film, and then um, uh, a, a a critical appreciation from Jonathan Rosenbaum, who kind of covers a lot of the stuff that I just talked about, except a little bit more in depth. And then trailers, of course, and uh, image galleries. So no, it's so um, it's it's completely it's, it's, it's completely a noir, is what it is. I mean, I know it's sixty two, but it's still a noir. Uh, kind and, of, and, and it just sort of it sort of uh, goes to show how noir is this sort of style that can apply to any genre. You can take any genre and, and shove it into a noir. Uh, that's what this is, and it's and it's wicked, wicked cool. You know, a gangster film without gangsters. You know, there it is. Yeah, there wicked, it is. Wicked, yeah. Well, with that, that is it for our uh, for our holiday show, and we are now going to dovetail into this incredibly great and and uh, hopefully not overly worshipful, but you know, still pretty worshipful <laughs> yeah, he's conversation. Gotta he's got it coming. He, he's got it coming. Look, uh, you know, Tim and I uh, were able to talk to John Badham, and uh, who was an icon to both of us. Grew up on his films, have loved his films forever. We even talked about the hard way a few weeks ago. We bring that up on the on the interview as well. So without further ado, here is our great conversation with the one, the only, the legendary John Badham. And for our special Christmas and holiday gift to all of our listeners, uh, Tim and I are happy to welcome someone who is an icon to us, someone who has been an idol to us, someone whose work we have grown up on. Tim, I'm going to give you some titles. You tell me what these movies have in common. <laughs> uh okay um stakeout mm -hmm. short short circuit mm -hmm. war games and blue thunder in the same summer mm -hmm. saturday night fever 
Dracula, the only one that really matters, the one with Frank Langella. Um, oh, yeah. Inco- incognito. <laughs> Nick of Time, one of Johnny Depp's best performances yeah. ever. What do all what do all, the hard way, which we raved about on Blu-ray just a couple of weeks Absolutely. ago? What do all the what do all these movies have? Uh, they are all directed by Mr. John Batham, um, uh, who we are so pleased uh, to be able to talk to uh, on the podcast. And you're right, we just talked about we just talked about the hard way. John, John, let me ask you uh, really quickly, right out of the uh, uh, the discussion that we had on. Um, uh, on the hard way a few weeks ago. So, uh, there's a scene in the hard way. That's one of my favorite scenes in it. And I laughed myself delirious. It is the urinal scene. (laughs) And without, without going into any details, without going into any great details there, um, the, the, there's an in joke in that scene that is a big Hollywood in joke. And my question is, was that in the script? Was it improvised? Is there any history to that, that in joke moment that you can, you can share with a family audience? Well, the, one of the fun things about that movie was setting these two scene stealers at odds with each other. I mean, each, each one is a major thief and could go to jail for felony, felony scene stealing. Uh, <laughs> so, so they would constantly be trying to one-up each other. And, and Jimmy is very sly in, in what he will try to do, but, but Michael would be topping him all the time. So I'm sure that that was that was a moment that Michael planned on once he saw uh-huh. what was what was going on. Oh, that's that's fantastic. I mean, that's but th- th- this is one of the things that I love about this book is that you are you do hear what most you know, I, I've read a lot of books on directing um, Sidney Lumet's for years was my top choice. Um but what you do here that even someone like Sidney Lumet does not do is that you really practicalize it. You, you get down right into the trenches and, and address all the stuff that I think a lot of directors are sometimes afraid to talk about. The actual on the ground, <laughs> in the trenches, dirty business of physically directing a film. Not the abstract theoretical stuff, but the really nitty gritty on the ground stuff. Talk talk about you know that that a little bit and your your entire approach to not just directing but to sharing the the art of directing. Well, I think a few years ago I was at the AFI giving a talk and had a class of about fifty people there, and somebody raised their hand and said, "What do you do when an actor won't do what you tell him to do?" And and I thought, well, how long do I have to say this? And and I noticed that. Everybody in the class suddenly sat up straighter, stopped looking at their iPhones. Uh, they were really interested. And I said, well, there's definitely a book here of, you know, practical advice that could be given in just in terms of working with actors. And of course, that is not just a black and white border. It spills over into working with your entire crew. And, uh, and so I you know, began trying to think of all the good ways that you could gain the trust of your actors and gain the trust of your crew and, and what was the best way and what was what were the bad ways and getting away from the old-fashioned uh, dictator from Eric von Stroheim and Otto Preminger and, and a lot of those kind of, you know, authoritarian directors into a much more modern way of dealing with people where you're, where you're making them your creative partners, 
you're you're wanting the actors to sh you know sh come and share your ide their ideas which they will not do if they're frightened of you or if they think that you're going to yell at them uh Anne Bancroft said to me once when I asked her what she wanted from a director, she said, I want him to let me screw up before he yells at me. Yeah, yeah. Much of this book, uh, John, is about working with actors, that moment with James Woods and, 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 and Michael J. Fox. I mean, you get down to it, you talk about a, a whole lot of things, and, and including lots and lots of practical things, but you really concentrate on working with actors. Um, wh why did you decide that that was one of the mo most important things that you wanted to convey um, uh, to, 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 to young filmmakers? And, and ultimately, when one reads the book, the, the thing that you seem to do the most when it comes to working with actors is just listen listen to what the, what it is they have to say or want to do or whatever it is. So talk a little bit about working with actors being the most important thing. Well, you know, something about the hardware of filmmaking is very easy to grasp. You can learn the ins and outs of cameras in a short while. You can, I can teach people lenses in, in a less than an afternoon, uh, microphones, lights, all of that stuff, it works. But, you know, when it comes down to actors, it's a kind of a terrifying prospect because you're dealing with with human beings who have these annoying opinions mm. and they 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 have ways that they'd like to do things. And and you're, you you'd be a fool not to listen and bring them into the conversation so that you're sharing ideas. Uh, well, my my undergraduate, my graduate uh, directing students, and a lot of grown grown directors, professional directors, are frightened of actors. They're they're frightened because they don't always do what you tell them to do. You can't set a sixteen f stop on an actor and and know that it will hold. You're you're going to get pushback, and and you you want that person to be, as I say, your creative partner, and. And that's what my film students need to learn how. And I keep telling them it's a lifetime process. One of the things that makes, makes directing fascinating for me after 50 years of doing it is constantly, you know, being challenged by different actors, different personalities. The, the cameras, whether they're digital or, or analog, don't make a bloody bit of difference to me. But But the actors have to be have to be dealt with with respect and and sharing. And and this is one of the things that I <clears throat> that I particularly love about the book is that it's not just you. You you have all these collaborators and other directors that you've roped in for their opinions as well. That you you've made it almost a communal effort here. I mean the the chapter six is is dovetailing right with everything you're saying. Working with actors. Where you know you you've got I mean uh, Taylor Hackford and Patty Jenkins and Alan Arkish and some you know Gil Cates and, and they're all they're all kind of weighing in with their thoughts on it. This is a really really interesting approach that you took it, to bring your colleagues into the conversation. It's a very non Hollywood non egocentric way of writing a book. Could you talk about why you went that way and how you kind of decided to go that way? Well, I, <clears throat> I started by thinking, uh, first of all, I, I feel like I have barely a rough grasp on how to do this thing. And I'd love to get input from Steven Soderbergh, from 
Alan Arkus from Patty Jenkins, all of so many directors that I admire and see what they think about it. And it's just so wonderful to be talking to uh, Steven Soderbergh and get to hear his thoughts about rehearsal and then talk to Sidney Pollack, bless his heart. Uh, one of the last interviews Sidney gave was his feelings about rehearsal are totally different. And Francis Ford Coppola is totally different from those guys. And you can't say that one is right and one is wrong because they each have their good points. And and why not look at it at the process of rehearsal from di several different angles rather than, than some dogmatic, uh, it has to be this this way. But you do still communicate um, um, your point of view, you know, across the, the the arc of the book, which I love too. For instance, regarding rehearsals, one of the things that you like to use is a pre-rehearsal checklist, um, uh, which I think is really really interesting. Um, uh, that you actually sit down and go through the things that are going on, I guess, in the scene. Uh, that you guys are going to be working on, and uh, and what the characters are doing, uh, it, it's it's just a just long sort of like list of things that a director can be thinking about and questions that the director can be asking that that might be useful uh, in that. So talk a little bit, if you would, about your your rehearsal process and pre rehearsal process. Well, taking you know taking a a, a page from one of one of my heroes, uh, Ilya Kazan, you know his his work before rehearsal is extensive into the characters and and the, the scenes and the goals and how to how to help his actors get there um, because going into rehearsal without having done a lot of preparation for it you're you're just kind of at sea you're sort of accepting anything but if you if you have gone and analyzed the different scenes what are the goals of the actors What's at stake for this this particular character in this scene? You know, what'll they lose if they don't get what they what they want? Above all, what do they want? Um, and these kind of things, it's just good homework because many times, too many of us directors tend to wing it, and we kind of get familiar with the scene, and then we kind of, you know, just show up on the set and start blocking, and it sort of happens and. Uh, there you are, but we really haven't dug into it deeply, which means that we're probably missing a lot of the subtleties, and we're hoping that our actors come in having thought about this, uh, you know, in much more detail, so that they're covering our they're covering our gluteus maximi. Mm. <laughs> you, you know, there, there's something that Tim and I have talked about too, which is that. Things in the digital era seem to have gotten a little bit lazy. The tools have become so uh, extensive and ubiquitous and cost effective. You know, you can you can shoot a movie on your phone and edit it on your phone now. I mean, um, it, it's reached a point where people feel like maybe they can rest on their laurels a little. And we see this in a lot of the films that we have to see on a regular basis for film week where you think, gosh, I wish they have worked a little harder at blocking. Uh, at moving the actors instead of moving the camera, you know, things where it just feels like there's a little bit of laziness creeping into the process. Do, do you have the same sense? Because when you look at, at your films, especially when we go back to, to the pre-digital era, I mean, Saturday Night Fever, every shot, every camera movement, every dolly, every composition 
is just so meticulous is just has looks like there's so much work that went into making it right making the actors move the right way and i feel like we've lost that a little bit uh, do you feel the same way i i do i i mean i th i think that uh you know learning the art of camera placement and moving camera is uh is as you say it's kind of di disappearing people uh, walk onto a set and they think in terms of a big wide master and then some medium shot closer, 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 insert next scene. Uh, and, and, and instead of thinking of some kind of, you know, movement and composition that enhances the storytelling. I mean, you know, we know that, 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 uh, great filmmakers like Stanley Kubrick, you know, put so much thought into where that camera is going to go. And, we're we're not able to have a Kubrick like schedule, but even on an eight day television show like uh, Supernatural that I've done a lot of, uh, you try to say what camera angle is going to support the this scene and story the best, and how can I keep it alive and moving and keep the the visual dynamics supporting what the story is going on. And and if you don't do that, as you say, I I take your point that it's it's just lazy. Hmm. As, as, because you have worked for such a long time, um, and and have seen styles of making films uh, change just because the technology changed. I mean, um, steady cams have been around for a long time, but you know there was, was a long time when there was no such thing. Um, oh God, yes. How do you how did you make those transitions? I mean, were you aware of them? as they were happening, whichever ones there might've been, and that you would uh, adjust how you worked as a director accordingly. Um, what, what, what happened in that, in that mode? Well, it's, it's just been very exciting. I was, I was in the room with, uh, with a lot of wonderful directors like Joe Sargent and Lamont Johnson and Michael Ritchie uh, when we got the first demonstration of the Steadicam in about 1974, and and it was so exciting to see, and and everybody at that point you couldn't record dialogue with a Steadicam because they they had no way of of shutting the noise down of blimping it, and and we're going this is so great if somebody would just figure out how to make that thing be quiet, you know <laughs> we've we've suddenly we have freed ourselves up from the dollies and from the sticks. You know, we, we've we've opened up the fluidity of it. I mean, people uh, like Jacques Demy, uh, you know, had working in France, had been doing handheld films for years, and and kind of uh, he he invented a phrase which was the tyranny of the nodal point, and meaning that when you put a camera on sticks or on a dolly, it's kind of stuck at that point where it's where it's nailed down. But with his held hand handheld cameras, so all of us, all of those directors that I named, you know, we're all celebrating what we can do with that. My God, you know, now nowadays we go to drones. I mean, drones are just great. You know, we can't afford helicopters, but we can afford a drone. And now we're doing shots that I see on TV all the time that are wonderful points of view of a situation that was was not achievable before so if you i guess the answer is you have to pay attention new things are always coming along and and you can't just stick with the, the same old tools 
that you've been you've been using, always looking out for new ways to tell the story better. You know, I think uh, something else that Tim will agree with me on, too, the, is that this is not just a book that's important for directors or for aspiring directors, but for writers as well. And and as as a couple of uh, film school grads who have, have some experience with uh, with writing, um, I, there are there are numerous places in here where I thought, boy, I wish I'd have I wish I'd have been taught that in my screenwriting classes. Um, I wish I'd have been given that perspective of looking at a scene from that point of view, because the way that writing is taught and the way that directing is taught sometimes tend to be at odds. Could you could you talk just for a second a little bit about working with writers and and what the what your experience is about the with respect to the director and the writer relationship and as far as getting the story right? Well, I, I can't speak for other directors, but I, I can say that, you know, writing is where it starts. Those guys are my heroes. Those guys that sat down with the blank page and and gave me something to work with, and and I have great great respect for them. And and trying to the the one of the first people I want to please is the writer, and I'd like him to look at it and say, yeah, that's what I had in mind, or or even hopefully that's better than what I had in mind. So that that's the that's the approach that I'm taking, which is one reason that I talk about analyzing scenes, you know, getting down into a granular level. Uh, so I'm trying to understand what the intention of the screenwriter was. And, and I'm always trying to service the screenwriter's intention because I picked it. I said, I'm going to do this movie. Uh, I didn't pick it because I hate it. I picked it because I thought I could do something you know, with it and have, have fun telling the story. And, and I think some of my, uh, uh, some of my best films were ones when I read the script, like Saturday Night Fever, and I just came out of my chair and ran around the house going, this is a great movie <laughs> or short, short circuit, uh, you know, for example, or, or even Nick of time, you know, yeah. you know, I just go, this is so interesting what this character is going through. He's not, uh, he's not some superhero. Uh, he's just some poor little accountant from, from Lompoc. And, and what the hell is he going to do about this? Yeah. In chapter t- uh, 13, signpost, you talk about, you talk about looking for the beats of a scene the, the, the mm-hmm, tipping point, mm-hmm. how the characters perceive each other. Um, it, it, because, you know, you sit down, you read a script, and, you know, somebody wrote a script, the, the, the leads and the, uh, the other actors are going to read the script. All of these folks are going to have sort of like different perspectives and points of view about what the hell is going on in the movie, in that scene, and all of that. Um, so as the director, you have to do this. How do you make sure that the, your understanding of what's going on is the thing that gets captured um, uh, in, when, you, when, when it comes time to actually to, to be on the day, as they say? Well, first of all, if, if I've done my homework properly, I go in. The, the next thing I do is say to myself, I can throw all of this away. I can completely forget everything I've prepared about this scene if somebody has a better idea. And... I, I got to work with uh, with Don Johnson on a on a short-lived series called Almost Legal, 
a few years ago. And, and Don is a, a great contributor to working with it. Go in and say, boy, I wonder what Don's going to say about this scene today. You know, and we would share ideas. Uh, I mean, if somebody comes up to me with, with an idea that I don't understand or I think may be crappy, I've learned, I think Alan Arkish taught me this, uh, to say, wow, that's really interesting. I never, <laughs> I never, I never thought of it that way. Tell me more, and and letting the letting the person have a chance to explain their ideas, and and suddenly, often the light goes on. I go, oh, I get it. Or just the fact of letting them explain their ideas is is really all they want. They just want to be able to express the idea and then kind of leave it up to you, the director, but the worst thing that you could do is listen to an actor and say, no, 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 we're not going to do that. No, that, that throws the whole story out of, out of whack. Um, so the old, uh, you know, negative, negative approach is never a good idea because you, you may win that little battle, but you're going to lose the war as you have to work with the actor over the next several days, weeks, or months. Mm. You know, I want I want to get a little bit into some specifics with respect to your career. And there is one very very distinguished moment, and I remember it well because it was it was a seminal point uh, for me as a film goer. <clears throat> and that was, and I think you still hold the distinction of being the only person who's ever directed two tentpole summer movies in the same summer, and that was War Games and Blue Thunder. And I remember it was a thing that summer, and, and and Blue Thunder came out first, and I saw that at the Avco in Westwood and was just blown away. I thought it had the most amazing audio mix. And then War Games came out maybe, I think, a month later, and, and we were just all thinking, this guy's a machine. How, how, how This is incredible. Like, these are two really big movies. It's not like he did... You know, it's not like when P when when Peter Yates did uh, Crawl and then The Dresser in the same year, and The huh. Dresser is basically two guys. I mean, these are two big movies. Yeah, some of '83, I mean, uh, a hell a hell of a hell, hell of a summer there. Yeah. What, what talk a little bit about that amazing moment in your career? You're still the only person who's directed two summer tent poles in a single summer. Here we are, you know, thirty some odd years later, uh, or nearly thirty years later, or forty years later, but. It, it, no one's done that because that's a real feat. How did you, I mean, how did you pull that off? Well, I, I think it was partly an accident of scheduling uh, where, where Blue Thunder was originally poised to be uh, an, an after, after Christmas, like maybe an Easter release. And, and then it got, it got delayed into early summer, which was, which was a good move. And we were still mixing the sound on on Blue Thunder when I get this panic call that uh, they're going to have to change a director on War Games, and and we had just started our final mix on 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 Blue Thunder, and and people are saying to me, well, don't don't do it, don't even read the script because if a if a movie is in trouble where they have to you know replace the director. Who knows what other problems are there? And my kind of naive answer was, yeah, but what if the script is good? <laughs> and, and then, okay, okay, okay. So I read it and, and I just, was a, what a fabulous story about 
seeing the you know the possibility of World War III through the eyes of a 15 year old uh, who thinks that he's playing a game with with the world and in in this new thing called you know computers and internets and stuff like that that we barely knew what what it was so I had my editor my composer Arthur Rubenstein my editor Frank Morris I said you guys stay here and finish the mix and I'm going to go over here and <laughs> and take over this movie uh where I had about you know 2 weeks uh to kind of work a little on the script and then walk in on a Monday and start shooting on a Thursday so wow uh and then and then at night you know when I would be going home I'd have to drop by the uh Tadeo Sound Studios and see what they had mixed in Blue Thunder that day. So you can only do this, you know, at a certain age. I, I, I don't think I, I would try it again. Wow. I mean, but that's, but again, that, that speaks to being prepared and having a process and all the things that are in this book that, you know, you, you, you have to, you know, really have your head wrapped around a very, very organized way of working. Well, you know, there's an interesting thing that I just just came to mind, which is when I went in to talk to the United Artists uh, uh, president, um, Paula Weinstein, uh, about this about this film, and I told her how much I loved the script and how how exciting it was, and and. And she, once she had decided that maybe I was going to be okay for it, she said, well, when can you take over? And, and I said to her, I can go down there right now and start shooting if you like. And she's kind of, her eyes bugged out. I said, the trouble is it'll be crappy. Mm. Mm. And I said, why is that? I said, because I have not had enough time to absorb and get a point of view on it. I'll shoot coverage and... And I'll get something that'll cut together, but it won't have any point of view to it. Uh, it'll be it'll be kind of generic until I catch up. You know, give me give me a week, and and I'll be a lot better off. Here's a, here's 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 a big sort of hitty sort of uh, film school geek question for you because you know you talk a lot about collaboration and and, and all that kind of stuff. What how do you view the auteur theory? of filmmaking, you know, the sort of ideas that, 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 that some filmmakers anyway uh, have to be the fundamental sort of author of their works. Do you think about that much or, uh, or is it simply one theory versus some other theory that you engage in? Well, there's so many different ways to, to make a movie. I mean, if you're going to be Tarantino, where, you know, so many of those films are just so admirable on so many levels, uh, and and there's definitely somebody who's an auteur, but then there are, you know, there are others who work on scripts that maybe they've helped develop, but they're not not the writer of them. My feeling is whatever works, uh, whatever is is a is a good way. I admire uh, the hell out of out of real, honest to god auteurs, not people who come in and you know, scribble, scribble a, new, a bit of new dialogue and then try to call themselves that. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a great, great skill. And, and I wish I had it. Uh, the only thing they let me write is uh, the, the checks to my housekeeper. 
Well, I, 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 I want to start to wrap up here and just let people know what an amazing book this is. You, you start off with the, uh, the five mistakes. It dovetails then into action and suspense, three strategies, then the director's checklist, and then kind of a primer on, on surviving television. Mm. And uh, it's, it's like a perfect summation, and every single chapter ends with, a, with like a checklist, a summary checklist for anyone who wants to sort of digest the advice here. You don't have to dog ear the pages and, and go back and you know, try to remember where things are. There's a checklist. Like it's really beautiful. It's as, it's as well organized as I would imagine your productions are. Well, thank you, thank you. Uh, and it was my my students at Chapman who uh, who suggested the the summary checklist at the end of chapters, and and I I did it, and I'm I'm certainly glad I did because sometimes I have to go back and read the summary to say what in the hell did I say in there. <laughs> Well, it's wonderful, and uh, and you know you have you have a couple dozen collaborators in here whose whose advice and experience is pulled in. Everyone from Paris Barkley to Michelle McLaren, who who are you know both ace television veterans, uh, to Mark Rydell and and uh, Sydney Pollack, the late Sydney Pollack, Steven Soderbergh, as you mentioned. I mean, it's just a, it's it's really really a, a wonderful book, and I I cannot recommend it highly enough to anybody who want who is a writer, who is a director, an aspiring writer, an aspiring director. There are there are just there's there's so much wisdom and experience in this book. You will you will treasure it and read it over and over. Uh, my I, Tim, I'll, I'll let Tim kind of wrap things out with with his final question. My final question is, um, if you had to give because things have changed so much, obviously as we talked about with technology. If you had to give one great piece of advice to an aspiring filmmaker, a writer, director, producer, somebody who wants to just get into the business today, um, what would that piece of advice be? Well, I, I think aside from make as many films as you can, uh, if you're going to break into, into the business, people are always asking you, well, what have you done? You need a calling card. Uh, and nowadays, filming has become so democratized uh, and, and so easy to do that there's no excuse for not having, you know, a, a film. And, That's a great point. Um, you know, I was I was present on the day that we ran Steven's uh, uh, Steven Spielberg's first film, Amblin, at Universal, and with wow. a, with a with a, a crowd of us who were all young aspiring directors and producers gathered into a little screening room, and in comes Steven with this this amazing, wonderful film called Amblin, and. And as, as it started to unspool, guys are going, I hate this guy. I already hate him. He's too good. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, you know, but he had he had the ultimate calling card. You know, it just turned around. My, my friend Jerry Friedman, who had arranged this, turned it around and showed it to Sid Sheinberg, who was then the president of Universal. Sid Sheinberg who was one of the smartest people you'd ever meet just grabbed hold of Spielberg and would not let him go. Uh, you know, stuck him in an office at 20 years of age with a secretary and said, here, make some movies. Uh, wow. That's, you know, that's what, it, and he delivered. He continues to deliver. He never stopped delivering. Um, but, you know, one of the things that, that he'll talk about, 
uh, from knowing him for so long is how how carefully he listens to people, how he doesn't lord over him this amazing, unbelievable track record that I don't know if any other directors can, you know, come close to that kind of track record. Uh, you know, but but he's not arrogant about it at all. You know, Marty Sheen was talking to me and saying that that uh, that Spielberg was one of the the, the kindest, uh, most personally involved directors that he had ever worked with, and Marty's worked with everybody. Fantastic. Oh, you, wait! I don't think I, I don't think I'm gonna uh, add to, to 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 that close. That was that was okay. fantastic. That's a beautiful way to go out. Uh, the book is On Directing by John Badham. It's now in its second edition and uh, from uh, Michael Weezy Productions. It is, it is an absolutely superb book. You can't miss it. It's got a beautiful bright red cover. And uh, I, I recommend anybody with any kind of love and affection for the movies or a desire to make them professionally or, or even amateurishly uh, or non-professionally, just run to Amazon and, and buy yourself a copy. You will not regret it. Mr. Batham, we thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Have a wonderful, wonderful holiday season. Well, thank you. Let me throw in one last thing, which is there's also a an audio edition of this book, which, oh, which I had the fun chore of reading. I thought this will be great. I didn't realize it was three hours, three days of nonstop reading. And that would go on forever. I said, oh, my God, I got myself into this. But at least there is an audio version. Something to listen to in your on your way to the set. That's right. Fantastic. That's right. Yeah, I love it. Well, have a wonderful holiday season, and uh, Tim and I will be back for uh, in in the next another week or two. Uh, thank you so much for for uh, talking with me, and I look forward to hearing you on Film Week. Thank you, John. Okay, thank you. John. Thank you. We're happy tonight. We're